You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 438. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 14th of August, 2020. In today's episode, two fatal accidents. An Air India Express flight runs off the end of a runway into a valley, and a Spanish plane crashes in Portugal while trying to drop water on a forest fire. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, The Secret Life of 60528. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 438 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining me today from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, she's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is so good to see you guys. And it's Friday, which is exciting since the weekend. TGIF. TGIF. All right, great to see you as well, Stefan, also joining us from his studio in the English countryside. Not London, outside of London. He's a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Stefan, Jeff. Uh, great to be on board again. You know, Fridays never meant much when I was an airline pilot, and now I'm in retirement. It means even less. Yeah, it's this whole day of the week thing is like yeah. a total new thing for many of us. All right. Yep. Well. Must be nice. <laughs> it will be, Steph, when oh, you get there. In like 30 years. Cool. Yeah. Hey, you know, you got to pay your dues. And speaking of, well, maybe. Speaking of paying our dues, it's time for us to do the news. Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. All right. First one in our news folder slash notebook segment, whatever you want to call it, is this. An accident. India Express Boeing 737-800 at a city that starts with a K on August 7th, 2020, overran the runway and fell into a valley. Uh, Air India Express Boeing 737 uh, Victor Tango Alpha... X-ray Hotel performing repatriation flight 
1344 from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates to Kojikode. How how'd I do? Kojikode? Kojikode? Sounds great to me. I have no idea. With 184 passengers and six crew landed on that particular city's runway 10, but went past the end of the runway. Uh, went past the runway end safety area, uh, which is 150 meters, and fell into a valley. Uh, let's see, it was 1411 Zulu time, 1941 local time. Coming to a stop about 100 feet below the runway and about 245 meters or 800 feet past the runway end. 18 people, including both pilots, died in the accident. 138 received injuries of varying degrees with 15 of them in critical condition. Actually, I think an update on that, I haven't looked for the update, but I believe that uh, one or two of the passengers have succumbed to their injuries as well. But uh, anyway. Uh, oh, nope, right here. Later in the evening, police reported there were 16 fatalities, 15 injuries in critical condition and 123. So those numbers may have changed uh, since the accident on the 7th. Uh, a congressman reported both pilots were killed in the accident. And uh, let's see here. Uh, the airline reported that Air India Express Flight 1344, operated by a 737 aircraft from Dubai to Calicut, overshot, overshot the runway. No fire reported at the time of the landing. Um, let's see. As per the initial reports, rescue operations are on. Passengers are being taken to a hospital for medical care. We will soon share the update in this regard. Um, let's see. On August 8th, uh, the next day, uh, Corella's uh, chief minister's office reported one victim of the accident has been tested positive for corona so far. All victims, including the deceased, will be tested for corona. All members of the rescue team needed to be sent into quarantine. On August 8th, uh, 2020, another passenger succumbed to the injuries. Okay. So... How much more do we need to talk about here? It looks like uh, th they really didn't give us any information except that uh, the runway at the time, um, it was raining. Uh, so it was a wet runway, uh, probably not a grooved runway, although I don't, no, don't know that for sure. Uh, and so the, the weather wasn't, you know, a beautiful day. It was, it was kind of adverse. Um, and I would imagine because of the lack of... Uh, uh, porous friction overlays or grooved runways. Uh, if you don't get the thing down right away and apply all the maximum stopping measures, this could be uh, kind of sporty. So yeah, it it uh, it landed at uh, a beam taxiway Charlie, which uh, means it had lost about three thousand three hundred and eighty feet of the runway, and it's only a nine thousand odd foot runway. So they left themselves with six thousand feet to stop in, which in normal situations would probably be fine for a seven thirty seven, I would guess. But um, I've got a little experience of landing uh, on airfields, uh, mainly the major international airfields like um, uh, Mumbai and uh, Delhi. Uh, and even there, they sometimes have trouble keeping the runways clean, particularly of uh, rubber um, uh, streaks that build up and uh, become extremely slippery uh, when they're wet. And sometimes the runway surfaces aren't in the best of condition. Um, 
But uh, we know that aquaplaning is always going to be a problem in uh, in heavy rain. Uh, and um, I don't know what the landing distance calculated would have been for this aircraft, but once you start aquaplaning, that kind of goes out the window. So um, I don't know. It, it They did suggest that the aircraft had quite sufficient fuel to uh, um, go around from this approach and divert. So why the captain persisted on landing, having uh, overshot the ideal touchdown point by such a large margin, giving himself very little option if uh, he did uh, aquaplane, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, Winds I were, know. what, 240 at 11 knots, it looks like, and they landed on runway, oh, I forgot. Runway 10, I think? 10, yeah. Yeah, runway ten. Ooh. So a little bit they of a tailwind, uh, late yeah. touchdown. Eight available. Yeah. Slippery runway, and you know, I was reading another article that talked about the fact that, um, and they use a certain term um, that I don't recall. That uh, there are several airports in this area of India that are built on raised uh, plateaus. Yeah, and, this was one of those. Mm-hmm. 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 It almost likes. I'm trying to think of the name of the term, but it's it's a it's like a huge bank with a flat top, and they built a runway on top of it. So, once you're off the end of the short clearway at the end of the runway, you're basically down into a gully, and then there's a pretty uh, fearsome uh, brick uh, boundary wall around the airport, which the aircraft nosed into. And undoubtedly, that was uh, the cause for the demise of the poor two pilots, mm-hmm. uh, the two poor pilots. Um, and the the flight date looks obviously an absolute mess because it's jammed into this brick wall. Um, the shot of the thrust levers is interesting, Jeff. Uh, I'm not familiar with those, the Boeing set up uh-huh. but uh, can you tell from there whether they've got the reverses in still it does not appear and that's we're looking at it from the backwards. opposite direction yeah. yeah backwards um and it does not appear to me that the thrust reverser levers are uh, in the extended position based on what okay. i can tell from this photo i'm assuming you're looking at it from the sort of third observer's seat no Oh, you're okay. looking at it like you're mm-hmm. sitting on top of the uh, the instrument panel glare shield and looking down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Just be, I mean, yeah, look at the way the because numbers are. when I look at the picture, uh, oh, God, yes, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Trying to work out which way around it is. You're quite right. I now look at the picture above it and go, yes, we're looking effectively through what would be the windshields yes. and the nose cone, except all mm-hmm. that is missing. Right. It, so the we're other, looking at the throttles from the wrong side. The other thing I noticed based on this photo, uh, looks like the speed brake um, spoilers lever is not in the extended position either. Ah, interesting. I wonder if that was a result of the impact or Could whether be. they didn't really uh, give themselves the best chance to stop. Yeah, so I'm sure that the accident investigators will use all the data they have available. I'm sure that that, uh, many of these things will be recorded on the flight data recorder. So, um, but this is, you know, part of the evidence that they're going to use to determine, you know, the position of controls and such. So, um, but they're going to see if that correlates with the FDR uh, in their investigation here. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Very sad. It, it's incredibly yeah. sad. And uh, that's quite a shocking picture. Now I get myself orientated. I thought I was looking through the first galley mm -hmm. into the cockpit mm -hmm. from the back. But now I realize that what I'm looking at is effectively the first officer's seat uh, with um, everything, an absolute mess. It's hardly mm -hmm. surprising that uh, they didn't. I mean, a lot it. of stuff has been rearranged there. So like you said, yeah. you have to correlate that yeah, with the true. flight data recorder to figure out where things actually were. Honestly, you know? when I first looked at this, I, I, it took me a while to kind of orient myself because, I, I, you know, the numbers are backwards and they're upside down. I'm right. thinking, wow, why is that? And then yep. I thought, oh, okay, it's the uh, the vantage point from which the, the, the photo is being taken. Yeah, very sad. Yes. So hopefully we'll uh, learn something from this as the investigation uh, goes on. And the oh. shot of the edge of this big bank, it's a pretty steep incline. They Once they ran out of uh, re flat surface, when they came down that incline, that's that's a good 30-degree slope there. Yes. At least, yeah. It's yeah. pretty horrendous. Yeah. And you can see why that just basically broke the fuselage uh, apart uh, after mm -hmm. the cockpit. Well, I'm but. so glad there wasn't a lot of fire. Otherwise, that might have been mm -hmm. disastrous for everybody. Yeah, could have been Down a lot there. more fatalities with the with the fire. Um, you know, we should probably do this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you may now use your tray tables and recline your seat backs. We want you to be comfortable while flying Acme Airlines. Thank you. <laughs> Is that a little dig at uh, some feedback on the last show? Yeah, perhaps? so we had some, I don't know if it was the last show, but uh, on a recent show, somebody was saying, you know, I'm kind of getting a crick in, in my neck and I'm, I'm, you know, I need to stretch my legs. And do I have to have the seat backs uh, in the upright uh, and locked position? And can I use my tray table? So I thought it'd be a fair thing uh, for us to kind of make sure that everybody's comfortable while listening to the show. Uh, you're yeah, very get kind. comfy. I don't remember who it was that sent that to us, but uh, I thought it was, I really chuckled when I saw that. Thought, oh, yeah. Ro Roger's saying all this stuff, and we never tell people when it's okay for them to, to get up. So I guess, you know, it feels pretty smooth right now. So let's go ahead and turn off the seatbelt light as well. So, uh, yeah, we're about to... like 10 minutes in reaching, you know. Yeah, about right. You're still not going to let them smoke, though. No smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, on Acme Airlines, smoke them if you got them. Just make sure you're wearing your mask. <laughs> Wait, what? No. I don't know. Uh, As the medical advisor, I'm going to. Um, but it's it's a healthy mind. smoke, Steph. All right, we'll we'll talk about this after the show, Jeff. We're gonna do some education. This all this time on my hands is really starting to get to me. I think uh, I can I'm, tell. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> you are. Oh boy. All right. Serious incident. Boeing 747-4 D7 Hotel Sierra Tango Golf X-Ray on the 11th of April, 2018. So let's see. Not just a few days ago. It was a Thai Airways International 747 flight. Um, let's see. Operating flight uh, 660 from Bangkok to Thailand to uh, Tokyo Haneda. Uh, airport in Japan experienced a too low EGPWS or EGPWS warning during a nighttime approach to runway 16 left of Haneda. Am I saying that right? Haneda? Haneda? Haneda, yes. Right. Haneda. Tomato, tomato. It's the other Tokyo Haneda. Uh, airport. Yeah. Not Narita. Haneda. All right. The uh, flight was cleared for a VOR Alpha approach for runway 16 left after Dark's arrival. The aircraft arrived from the east and after passing over Dark's. 
aircraft have to cross Sazan at or above an altitude of 1,100 feet while descending at a bearing of 274 degrees toward Haneda, Haneda VOR DME and enter a circling approach, the downwind leg of runway 16 left. After visually recognizing runway 16 left and with turning to the right, normally pilots visually select a route in circling approach and approach the landing runway. However, noise abatement procedures require aircraft to fly along or inside a specified course for landing on runway 16 left. So a circling approach, just quickly for those who are not uh, instrument-rated pilots or haven't done a lot of research on approach procedures, are basically instrument approach procedures that get you down to a certain altitude. And then from that point, um, between that point and the missed approach point on that approach, you have to get uh, visual contact with the uh, landing runway or the airport environment. I think, what was the actual terminology? Not necessarily the runway, but the airport environment, I think. And then you can maneuver visually. So it's from that point on, it's a visual maneuver. Unless you never got visual on the airport environment, and then you have to comply with the missed approach procedure. So, uh, And the reason why some airports have these kind of approaches, like in this instance, it's probably a noise abatement thing. Because if you came in uh, to straight in to land on runway 16 left or 16 right, based on the photos that I, or the uh, images I was looking at, looks like you'd have to fly right over Tokyo. And they don't want you to do that. So they want you to come in from a different direction, fly over the water, basically, so you're disturbing the least uh, number of people. And then you maneuver the aircraft. So you're coming at it from the, looks like from the uh, east or east-southeast and then you uh, get to a certain point where you start doing your visual maneuver. You head up toward the, the north-northeast, and then you make a uh, big wide left hand. Well, I say wide. I'm not sure exactly how wide it is, but you're over the, uh, the area with the, the shipping container cranes and that kind of uh, stuff in the, in the port and uh, away from where people are living. And then you kind of just bring the thing around, and you line up on your landing runway, and then... You go in and have a beer. So unless you're going to be flying again, then you shouldn't do that. Um, but it looks like if you look at some of the ground track from this uh, crew, you can see that uh, the actual flight path that they flew is in red, and the blue is what they are supposed to be tracking. And it to me, it looks like they may be fixated on something that wasn't the runway or maybe it was an, another runway uh, that they got confused with and they got kind of low uh, they were not supposed to descend below 1100 feet until a certain point and they were just continuing to descend dur during this entire maneuver and they got how low did they get 200 and some odd feet um above yeah ground. they went around at 300 and something feet and oh, they and the, literally lost sight of the runway in the distance behind some containers. Yeah. So they, whoa, that shows you how low they were. And then the GPWS went off. Uh, wow. So they, they, it was enunciated at 304 feet, and the lowest altitude they recorded was 282 feet. Yeah. As Nick so mentioned. not good. Yeah. Not good. Looks to I me think like. US, I think you only get like 300 feet of obstacle clearance. Or so, you know, if you've got the mm -hmm. ceiling right above you at the the limits, so yeah. yeah, yeah. So it looks to me like they, rather than 
following the procedure, which was to pass over the waypoint Cezanne, a run on a uh, continue ahead for about a mile and a half, then turn right about uh, 60, 70 degrees for a, what is effectively a downwind leg, mm -hmm. this, you know, the second half of a downwind leg, and then a beam the runway, you just make a finals turn. I, I say just make a finals turn, doing this kind of thing in a 747. It's a big aeroplane uh, to be thrown around uh, doing uh, what is effectively a low-level circuit. Uh, not ideal unless you're very practiced. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they should have done that. Uh, extend ahead, turn right, continue on the end of downwind, and then just do a finals turn and line up and land. But they turned as soon as they passed over Cezanne yeah. and commenced descent. It was way early for the descent point, and they were also putting themselves very wide downwind. So, uh, And then visually they just tried to creep in towards the runway rather than extending to the end of the downwind leg so that at the point at which they should have started their down their finals turn, they only had 90 degrees left to do, and they were extremely low. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a ground yeah. track here with a satellite, Google Earth satellite image, uh, and their ground path kind of superimposed. And uh, you can see they were pretty darn low um, yeah. over that area in the, in the port uh, before they initiated so the It sounds to me procedure. very much like the, the guy, the pilot who was flying was heads out, trying to stay visual mm -hmm. and, and didn't really have himself well orientated and certainly didn't fly what to me would be a, a normal turn. I mean, if you could, if you're coming around a thousand feet, uh, you would normally, uh, I would normally start a descent about a third to a half the way around the finals turn. Um, and then mm -hmm. that I'd have about the right amount of height to lose before, when I got to the threshold. As depicted but, on that chart. Yeah, exactly. But he started, so far out and so early that he must have just lost all perspective on what the mm -hmm. runway looked like. So I, I, I guess we're, he and everyone is very pleased that, that he listened to the EGPWS and decided to throw away, throw it away. Sure. Well, there were only a couple hundred passengers on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty impressed too. Yeah. yeah. Thank the Lord for that. Yeah. And, and you were asking, you were um, trying to remember, it's, uh, I believe it's any identifiable identifiable part of the airport. So airport okay. environment, you need to keep in sight, not yeah, the, the runway. Airport necessary. environment, I think, is a term mm -hmm. that I remember in my instrument. Yeah, I had, to, I had to double check because it's been a while since I've looked at that right. wording specifically. So, so I, I can't quite remember. Was it a night approach? Um, I think it was night. I have a feeling it was, but uh, I mean, which just adds to the problems. Uh, it was uh, just after midnight local time when they initiated uh, yeah. the go yeah. around. I mean, yeah. uh, the runway lights generally um, are orientated down the runway. There are omnidirectional lights probably every 300 feet at a guess, depending on how the lighting's set up. So when you're actually downwind, you don't have a really bright set of lights to look at on the runway. They're fine once you're coming around the finals turn and you're coming into the direction the lights are orientated and you've got all those lovely approach lights. But when you're actually downwind trying to judge your position, particularly if you're a bit low, it's very hard to lose that, that runway. And, of course, with all the city lights around, if you're not mm -hmm. very familiar with Hanita, uh, I suspect this would have been a tricky approach to fly. I think they do actually have some lighting set up to kind of help you with that path that they're expecting you oh, to Oh, do they have a, a, a running rabbit or something around the corner? Um, not, I'm not sure exactly what kind of system it is, and I hope I'm not 
confusing that with another incidents, uh, incident or accident. Uh, but I, d- I don't have it in this collection of images in our show notes, but I do seem to recall that there was something that was showing different types of lights um, on the ground that kind of helped with that, uh, the pilots to kind of fly that path that they're expecting yeah. you to fly. Well, JFK has an approach which is not as severe as this one, the no. Kanazi approach, and they have a set of lights to follow around the finals turn, right. and they get still get lots of guys who misline the aircraft, pick mm-hmm. the wrong runway, get too low, and have to go around. Um, so I mean, I've seen uh, people in in broad daylight go around from an approach, uh, one of the Kanazi approaches mm-hmm. under the 1-3s at New York. Um, so it's, you know, these visual approaches in this, you're very practiced, Adam, uh, and you're familiar with the airport, can be tricky at times. Yep. So, luckily, happy ending, and everybody... We all like a happy ending. We do like a happy ending. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, is it time already for... Uh, Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Next item, uh, not so happy ending on this one. A Canadair CL215 crashed at the Spanish-Portuguese border while fighting a forest fire and uh, one pilot was uh, deceased immediately and the other was uh, severely injured and then the other pilot later died in the hospital or is that or did I get that wrong only one of the pilots died not sure uh, both were severely injured one of the pilots okay, so later one of the died. pilots passed okay maybe one's still alive then um, The aircraft was fighting a fire that broke out in the town of Lindozo in the heart of the Pineda Garez National Park. I don't know. Help me out, somebody. In Portugal at the border with the Spanish region of Galicia. 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 I don't know how to pronounce the Portuguese National Park because their pronunciation is weird. I, you know, my Portuguese a little bit rusty. A little bit rusty. Uh, but hey, I've had some really good red wine from Portugal. Thank you, uh, Nelson. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time of the accident, seven Portuguese and four Spanish aircraft were trying to control the forest fire. And uh, there, there are some pictures in the show notes of the um, accident scene. And uh, big radial engine, two uh, twin engine, uh, both big radial engines on this uh, pretty uh, beefy looking uh seaplane water bomber or amphibian uh, yeah. didn't we airplane? see one very similar at oshkosh when we were there i think similar, we did. yeah i don't know if it was the same neither do i exact but it looked type, very, but similar. very similar sure yeah they all have that look with the high wing and the big radials and the the boat hull nose area mm-hmm. and uh and this one has the wing or the the wings that swing down the uh, wheels that come down so they can land on hard surfaces. Uh, but uh, anyway, sad story. That's all we know at this point. Uh, that uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, it seems like I've seen a fair number of um, there have been. video. Um, not, not from this point, oh. not specifically this one, but a fair number of videos of firefighting aircraft where, you know, I've, certainly they want to get the fire retardant, water, whatever it is they're using to put out the forest fire um, close to 
you know, where it needs to be. Um, but a lot of times these things, um, these forest fires occur in hilly, somewhat mountainous terrain that can be pretty unforgiving. And you got a lot of smoke and other things that hamper visibility. And I feel like I've seen a lot of videos recently where it's like, wow, that was, they were close to, you know, terrain there when they maneuvered and after they've dropped the retardant and then pulling back up. Yeah, I've seen a couple where the airplane and the shadow seems to almost merge. Yeah, so they, they, they become very, very close, close to the ground. Yeah. I mean, it's a high-risk uh, um, occupation, I think, sure. being a pilot that does this. And it's almost entirely done by Mark 1 eyeball. Um, you know, you're just trying to judge uh, exactly, and you've got to know the performance of your aircraft. And uh, if if for some reason the water doesn't drop, you know, you still have to be able to recover if uh, – um, if uh, you because you're still very heavy, unexpectedly perhaps you can't rely on that loss of weight to give you the extra lift you need to get away. So, a lot of uh, cal mental calculations must be going on, and there's not a lot of room to maneuver when you're just operating that close to the ground in such a big airplane. Now, just looking at these photos, uh, the the bottom two, it looks like the aircraft kind of hit the ground in a almost level kind of um yeah it looks like they almost got away with it doesn't it they may yeah, have, like maybe they were the, flying the profile the, of the terrain at that and point the, maybe the smoke had obscured the ground at that point or something and they didn't realize oh, it was like you said, too you know heavier than they expected or didn't have the performance they expected or right eyeball calibration somebody in the chat know? room or live audience here was saying something about they think that they had just uh, okay here we go ramiro kuto I heard they had just picked up a load of water. Not clear if they dumped before the crash or not. So, oh, interesting. Uh, okay, yeah. It seems like a lot of uh, recently, and maybe it's just because it's time of year that there are a lot of fires around. But um, I, there was another, I think, uh, somewhere in the western United States, uh, two single engine or single pilot um, single engine airplanes were. Uh, collided somewhere i think maybe over idaho or something like that um anyway mm, i don't remember okay well um hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about that uh, accident investigation in the future the um this is an interesting one a uh, test pilot for boeing and the 737 max um ended up after his testimony um Anyway, he, he played a, a key role in the certification of the fatally flawed aircraft. Um, and then after that testimony, he ended up getting on with uh, Southwest Airlines. And uh, this uh, news article says that um, he just recently, after about approximately two years with Southwest, um, took the buyout that the company had offered to all 60,000 of its employees and uh, so uh, he is uh, retiring from Southwest. Not a very long career with them. <laughs> um, yeah. I thought it was interesting that um, they say that he was a first officer and that when he uh, joined the company, he worked um, trying to find. He had been working at Southwest headquarters in Dallas and held the rank of first officer. Now, I don't know if that means that he was a pilot flying at the base in in dallas or if he hmm. was like was working in doing training or yeah, not doing the actual flying what, what we'd say line flying but more of a mm -hmm. management uh, kind of pilot or something i don't know doesn't really 
give us that doesn't clarify no no um anyway he he was uh, uh given a pretty hard time uh, at least his testimony was given a pretty hard time by the inquiry wasn't he by congress yep. um i'm hoping he wasn't pressured into leaving southwest you know the article doesn't make it sound that way you know no it make no, it, it sound like it was he just took what but was you don't offered. know what goes on behind you know no, yeah. i'm sure you'll never know that so yeah. well on the uh, article the the second article i have here that has to do with him and being picked up by southwest uh an older article said according to documents supplied to congress forkner identified issues with the 737 max's mcas See, that's one of those things, MCAS system. So it's actually an MCAS system, or MCAS. And he said, uh, so I basically lied to the regulators unknowingly. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, not, not good. A little bit of controversy there uh, regarding yeah. his uh, testimony and the certification. As we know, that's one of the big problems in this whole thing with the 737 MAX is the, uh, the certification of the airplane. Maybe yeah. he was forced out of Boeing, not out of Southwest. Hmm. And Liz says uh, maybe he was forced out of Boeing and not out of Southwest. That's a possibility, hmm. I guess. Anyway, I just thought it was kind of Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. You know, aviation is a, a small world, right? Mm-hmm. So um, people oh, yeah. move around and bounce around and do different things and connections are there. And um, There's no yeah, doubt when he joined Southwest, uh, his name would have been... Uh, an area of discussion amongst most of the flight decks uh, because mm-hmm. you've got much else to do except talk that kind of stuff sometimes. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I'd like to, I'm sure there's much, much more to the story than we'll ever know. Mm. Unless you happen to know that person personally. All right. And the last item in the news folder military helicopter shot at over Virginia, crew injured. I thought, what? Is Virginia in the Wild West? I'm just curious. No, it's Washington, D.C. Yes. area. <laughs> it's the Wild Those East. Virginians. <laughs> yeah, this uh, actually occurred uh, just north, about 10 miles northwest of Manassas Regional Manassas. Airport, which is very close to Washington, D.C. Yes, it is. Just right, south okay. of the Dulles International Airport, actually. Oh, my God. They could have shot at me. They could have. Could have. Maybe they could did. Have, you have. just never knew it. <laughs> Hopefully, lousy shots. Well, they got lucky on this one. Air Force uh, helicopter was forced to make an emergency landing at a Virginia airport Monday after someone shot at it, injuring a member of the crew. Local and military officials told McClatchy News. McClatchy, uh, DC.com is from the website. Uh, the injured crew member who was not identified was treated at a hospital and released. So luckily it wasn't a serious injury. Initial findings are that the helicopter was struck by a bullet, resulting in a minor injury to an aircrew member and damage to the aircraft. According to the Air Force, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is looking into the incident. Uh, The FBI dispatched special agents and its evidence response team to the Manassas Airport after receiving reports that a helicopter was shot at from the ground nearby, according to the FBI's Washington field office. Officials at Manassas Regional Airport said they received a call at about 12.20 p.m. alerting them that a military helicopter was inbound and that paramedics were on the way. A second airport official said the injured Air Force crew member was taken to a local facility for treatment. The helicopter remained at the airport as 
an investigation was launch, uh, launched into the shooting incident. And there's a nice picture of these uh, Air Force uh, UH-1N Iroquois Huey aircraft from the first they helicopter look, squadron. That's quite a fancy paint job for the standard military airplane. You know, blue with a gold stripe. What's I think this is part of their uh, VIP helicopter mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, ah, division. It's an attempted assassination. Yeah, maybe they maybe somebody thought that Trump was on board the the UH one. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't, they don't understand that Trump doesn't so fly they, they in this were, kind of helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. They were discussing this a little bit on uh, PTUK their military segment, uh-huh. which we recorded just before we got on the air. Um, but they were saying so. Someone mentioned that there's a lot of uh, reenactments in the area, like Civil War reenactments. So maybe it wasn't a very high powered. Uh, <laughs> it was a, a it was muzzle a musket, uh, musket. Yeah. musket loader. <laughs> I love it. But no, that's just that's just being silly a little bit. But oh, those guys at PTUK are so silly, so silly. All right, but either way, I mean, geez. I mean, I've heard of you know like people shooting at these things, but you know when it it, it caught my attention when it said that it actually hit the helicopter and it actually injured somebody inside the helicopter. Yeah, I mean that's that's that could have gone wrong. That's definitely serious. Yeah, very serious. Yes. All right. Well, that is it with our news segment, and you all know what that means. It's time now for you, dear listener and uh, watcher, viewer, uh, for you to uh, get to know us, what we've been doing since the uh, last show. And I have a feeling, well, you know what? I think you're, you have something interesting to tell us about, don't you, Steph? Probably. I have a couple interesting things. <laughs> okay. Actually, I should have made notes because a lot has happened since the last time we. I know. Uh, I was thinking. Well, there's probably show. not much that you've been doing. No, no, I take that back. I think she's really been pretty darn busy with yeah, stuff. Still, still super busy. But um, part of the reason for that was I've been um, working, accumulating some hours in these turbine aircraft, and I finally got signed off on one last weekend. So, yeah. So now you're official skydive. Uh, 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 almost. There's there's a couple paperwork formalities to finish oh, okay. up, but uh, uh, but yeah. So um, yeah, the I'll be flying um, the Quest Kodiak for the time being. So. Okay. Yep, spent a bunch of time well, on that. And, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. I mean, how so, do you enjoy flying it? Is it good? Yeah, I do. I mean, it, it's a really, I mean, it's a fun airplane to fly. It's um, it's funny. It's the fanciest jump plane I've ever seen because it's got G1000 in it and everything else, which makes Ooh, wow. setting everything up really easy. Um, but yeah, I, it, it, you know, it's um, not a terribly big aircraft, but um well, it's generally 11 jumpers and it's um, bigger than a 172 it's a lot bigger a than serious, <laughs> yeah, speaking of flew a flew a, C, or flew a um, Cessna 182 yesterday and I was like wow this thing is tiny <laughs> yeah <laughs> interesting to get a whole new perspective on yeah it really things. it really does so yeah. yeah yeah lots of um yeah I had to yeah fair amount of study there and um, just making sure things were good to go for that aircraft checkout with the instructor and um yeah we did that last weekend and um finish up the paperwork and then hopefully at some point start flying jumpers. Now on your, um, your, uh, certificate, uh, your card, does yeah, it, does it's it not have a type any? rating? It's no. not a type rating. So it's just, no, it's just, change. so it's mostly, so all of this was mostly for experience purposes, you know, it's turbine aircraft as opposed to, you know, single engine piston stuff. So, um, mostly just enter, um, engine management there, knowing the systems of the aircraft and then time for, um, and yeah, insurance purposes. Uh, John McElroy is asking horsepower. 
Ooh, fair amount of horsepower. So um, is it a PT6? Y- yes, it does, John. It will have PT6. horsepower. At least one. At least one. <laughs> at least one. <laughs> God, he's gonna put me that's on a the true spot, statement, isn't gonna... it? One, at least one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. probably a lot. I, don't more. worry, Steph. I don't know the thrust rating of any airplane I've ever flown. So. Yeah, he's gonna put me on the spot there, and I gotta double check with not, the, the power setting. Not a number that I banned because we don't ever use. The, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. no reason to use the full power setting on it. So, um, I think uh, the A340. No, I'll get back to him here in just a second with the... uh, The A340 had the equivalent power of a 1,000 Ford Mondeos. Yeah, yeah. The only one I can remember reliably is is the the Garrett engines on the... on the Cessna Caravans with those conversions of 900. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, I'll get back to you in just a second, John. Yeah. But yeah, so that was cool. Um, And then um, I can tell you all the... uh, the torque settings and other power settings. Ooh, can <laughs> you? you? Want to know all that? No one's interested. <laughs> no, I don't want to know. No. Nothing um, personal. So there was that. Um, Colonel Jeff was in town last weekend. Um, so it was fun. Had him over for, for dinner in the evening on Saturday. And then... Um, Here, let me play that audio that re- you recorded. Yeah, we didn't record any audio. Oh, okay. Um, and that day was interesting too, because we had a... <laughs> there was... He's mean, isn't he, Steph? <laughs> You know, we did. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just exhibiting my passive aggressiveness (laughs) once more. Um, What else was I going to say? No, there was an earthquake in the area, which is kind of unusual for. Did you feel it? I did not. So I was already down um, at the drop zone, and none of us down there felt I think we were too far away. But I came home that evening, and um, um, uh, yeah, up in my in my bedroom and other places. So all of the dresser drawers were open. So things definitely shook. And there were a couple of picture frames that had fallen off the mantle of the fireplace. Oh, that's significant. So, Either yeah. that you had a burglar. No, yeah. definitely not. But um, no, most people in the Charlotte area felt it, but I was already, I was too far South. So wow. yeah, I've lived okay. in a lot of um, earthquake prone places, but um, I've yet to feel an earthquake in my life. So, I feel the was saying something. Move I thought well, I was uh, in Ellie once and uh, we're at the bar and I thought we're having an earthquake. And then the barman said, no, it's the washing <laughs> machines in the room below. Oh, I thought I was going to say, no, you've just had way too much to drink. Well, sir. I had that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, The world was swaying. So I, I uh, recall one of the last earthquakes that I experienced. I was in the, the basement level of a, of a store in a shopping mall. And I'm walking down there and all of a sudden my knees feel like they're buckling. Like I'm going to just on my own, my legs are giving out and thinking, whoa, this is serious. Like what's wrong with me? And then I kind of caught myself and I looked around and everybody else was looking at each other. Like everybody's like, what, what's going on? And then you notice some of the signs swaying and I went, ah, oh, okay. I'm not, I'm not dying of some kind of a terrible disease yet. Uh, it's just uh, an earthquake. So to get back to, to John, 750 horsepower. 750. Yeah. There we go. Shaft horsepower. Ding, ding. Shaft horsepower. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, that's a lot of horses to shaft. Or as I Hall Boxes says, uh, shaft power horse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, he did say that. <laughs> yes, spotted. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Oh, boy. All right. Um... So uh, that's it. That's that's the only thing that's been going on. 
Um, what else? Just earthquakes. Was there, and, uh, was there new... more than that? And no, that's a lot of stuff. Check out that's, an aircraft cool. and work. And so this yeah, mean that is... you can on your own uh, fly the uh, the jump plane uh, with mm-hmm. a bunch of jumpers and that's that's what is that, that means. normal the normal configuration. Yeah, yeah, just single pilot. How operation. come you don't need a type rating though to fly? Because of weight. It's, got, um, if it's, it's more, under it's under twelve thousand pounds. It's under twelve thousand five hundred pounds. Twelve thousand. Uh, okay. There we go. Yeah. But it does have yeah, seven hundred and fifty. Seven thousand three hundred and one. Ah. Now I can remember that number. God only knows. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. All right. Um Nick, how are the uh, stuff, did you have anything else? No, Liz is reminding me that I had some other visitors too, but that's that's fine. Just family oh, members came that's to secret. No, it's not secret, it's just yeah. cousins stopped by on, on the oh, drive on the way, back to college. Yeah. Making it just a stop through just a stop through so yeah okay. been about an hour and a half before they had to get to bed and get up early the next morning to continue their drive oh yeah that's not good so yeah they had a lot of driving to do but glad that they could stop by excellent great i'm trying to think was there anything else there was just a lot of stuff yeah i think that's it all right well if you think of something else just let us know yeah we'll do nick how's the uh, lawn bowling uh, well, nothing this week at all. I've got a match next week coming up. Uh, that's the semi-final of the men's singles. So if I get through that, I'm into the finals. So that would be great. Um, weather here has been a bit sort of, uh, uh, for those of you used to hot climates, you'll laugh. But, uh, you know, it's got up to 35 degrees and very high humidity. So um, it's been a bit unusual for us and so we've tended to kick around doing not a lot trying to find cool rooms to to uh, lay back in uh it's cooled off a bit now still very humid so even though the temperature is like 10 degrees uh, down it's still not particularly comfortable uh and uh, it's gone from clear skies and hot sun to uh, overcast and a bit drizzly but uh other than that it's you know, not the weather show, is it? Um, nothing much going on at all. Been very busy uh, doing plane tests. Uh, really pleased with uh, the one on this show, um, and because I really enjoyed the story. That's always for me the kicker on a good uh, plane tale. Is I find a story that fascinates me. I hope it, you know, it's the same for everybody else. So, mm-hmm. um, really enjoyed doing this week's and trying to catch up on a few that still need to be published before we're up to date with the latest ones. Uh, doing still doing chapters on those. So, if you do get to see a plain tale from now onwards on your podcast machine, uh, you should get uh, images uh, during the the tale that uh, indicate what's going on. So that. Is another aspect we hope will improve your enjoyment. Um, so, no, nothing much going on at all. I've got a photo shoot uh, next week, um, but other than that, no, it's uh, it's all all fine and beautiful here in jolly old England. Still enjoying retirement. That extra amount of work that uh, Nick is doing and I'm doing, um, we we understand. You know, it, it is extra load on us, but we think it's a nice thing for people to be able to experience uh, by, while watching or listening to our show and uh, listening to the uh, Plain Tales. So, and just another reminder that uh, Plain Tales is a standalone product as well. If you want to have uh, your own Plain Tales uh, podcast on your 
Apple's pod, Apple Podcasts or uh, Overcast or Pocket Cast or whatever client you use. Um, yeah, make sure you look for that. Do a search for Plain Tales, and then you uh, can subscribe. Yep, for they're free. all there. Yeah. Did you want to mention where Rick is or isn't? Um, so Liz is saying, Jeff, do you want to mention where Rick is or isn't? Um, that's yeah, a good, where is does he? anybody really know where Rick is? I have um, no idea. Uh, he's we, either in Tokyo or Sydney. I think he's. I think he's one maybe or, the other, or maybe yeah, between Tokyo and Sydney. We're not really sure. We were hoping that he was going to be able to make it um, on the show today, um, but something changed a day or two ago. Um, some kind of a issue with the aircraft, and they they missed their their curfew for takeoff. And so that probably uh, interrupted the, tr- the trip enough that it just threw everything off. Um, originally, just a few days ago, he said that he thought that it was going to be very, very early in the morning in Sydney when he joined us on the show. But sadly, um, he's, he's not going to be able to hear, be here with us today. Unless he just pops in. You know, we'll be on the lookout for that. You never know. Maybe he'll surprise us. Um, but, um, yeah, that's what we... Uh, yeah, he got stuck at Sydney unexpectedly, which upset his schedule, didn't he? He uh, missed the curfew. And for those of you who don't know Sydney well, they have a very strict nighttime curfew jet ban so that uh, if you end up being delayed and you're going to slip into that curfew, if they, they will let you get airborne, but there's usually a humongous uh, fee or fine associated with that. Um, we used to get airborne out of Hong Kong to fly our Sydney leg down and arrive, plan to arrive just uh, as the curfew ended in the morning at about 6 a.m., I think. But if you got a bit of a tailwind and got there early, uh, you know, you just uh, never even attempted to make an approach uh just in case you broke that curfew because it was more money that you could shake a stick at <laughs> yeah really not worth the effort i think um rick in uh, sheffield wants us just to uh play the crickets just in his honor or the rickets oh just so he feels like rick's around yeah there you go well you know what rich we hope you're getting your money's worth and he is, by the way, a financial contributor to the show. So I really do mean that. Um, let's see. Anything else, Nick? No, nope, that's it. All right. Um, let me share something with you uh, on the screen. And this is, um, I was doing something the other day. And uh, I realized that on Liberated Syndication, the company that we use to host our audio files, um, they have an RSS feed as well for the show. It's not the one that we use uh, for Apple Podcasts and all the other uh, podcasts out there and, and uh, let's see, Spotify and all those things, all those services. Uh, but it's one that actually has all of the episodes going all the way back to episode number one. And you'll notice that on Apple Podcasts and others, uh, they only show, I think, the top or the last 300 episodes. I'm not sure exactly what the number is. Uh, but there's a certain number of them that aren't available on that particular feed. And so if you're someone who has caught the um, the uh, the syndrome and you want to listen to those earlier episodes, you could always go to the website and do a search for episode one and two and three, et cetera. 
But if you want it in the uh, form of an RSS feed, just go to this. Uh, I have the link. I, I think I'm putting the link now in every uh, all the show notes for each subsequent show uh, to this particular web page. But on this web page that I have uh, showing on the video right now, uh, it's, it's not very pretty, but that's okay because it, it does the trick. It, it serves a purpose. And you'll notice that the one there is our last episode, APG 437 Flying Horses and Nappies. But you'll notice right above that there's a black bar and there are all these things like Facebook, Twitter, uh, email. Uh, the fourth one from the left um, is the little icon that's used to show the RSS feed. And so you can find the RSS feed and subscribe to the uh, podcast manually using that if you want, uh, if you want those earlier episodes. Or you can just use this darn webpage and up at the top here under episodes and archives, and then it has all the different years going back to um, the year and month, May of 2011, that I rebranded the Catholic Pilot Show to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And look at there episode 001 air france 447 update and that was on the 30th of may 2011 that was the first episode that i used the new rebranding so just wanted to make everybody aware of that you know on occasion we get that question from people that are new to the show and say yeah what i hear about people talking about some of these earlier shows i can't find them so there you go you can get that show in the Smithsonian Institute as well in the museum. Yeah, along next, alongside the uh, the coal burning Wright brothers. Yeah, and the coal burner. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> airplane that was just retired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that never gets old ever. Uh, All right. Sorry. Um, good old JT8Ds fired or powered a bunch of great airplanes. They did. And, and still are, by the way. a lot, too. Yeah, <laughs> they did. When they were new, they didn't. All right. Uh, let's see. What have I been doing? Nothing. <laughs> it's been very, very laid-back lifestyle. Huh? Pardon? Busy schedule, then. Yeah. I'm still, uh, nothing has changed regarding when I think I'm going to be going to training. Uh, no confirmation of October. <laughs> so, so we'll see. Um, and I'm kind of getting into a nice little routine here at home, uh, taking walks every morning before it gets too late in the morning so that the, uh, thunderstorms don't, uh, open up on me when I'm out there walking. Um, I'm also singing, um, a lot. Many of you know that I like to sing in, uh, various musical ensembles at my church. And uh, this week has been particularly busy because uh, a whole bunch of confirmation masses going on. So hmm. uh, I'm one of just a, well, basically we're just a quartet uh, singing at those masses. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, still enjoying that. That's pretty much it. And I suppose now, unless there's anything else you all want to add, we can go to the coffee fund. I'm good. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yes, the coffee fund. The Java Jive. Jeff Smith. Thank you for doing that for us. Uh, the coffee fund 
Coffee Fun Cadre, Coffee Bar Club, whatever you want to call it, is uh, your way to support the show financially. And we have a lot of expenses on the show. Um, website hosting, uh, the audio uh, file hosting, that's a separate thing. Uh, equipment and uh, meetups. Not doing a heck of a lot of meetups lately because of this whole Rona thing, unfortunately. But you know, we'll catch up one of these days. So anyway, if you want to uh, join the Coffee Fun Cadre, uh, the information about that is on airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. A couple different ways to do it. Uh, first is the classic method. And since the last episode, a couple of uh, recurring uh, contributions from Mazuz Karim, George Leslie, and Richard Adams. Thank you, guys, for your ongoing contributions to the fund. And no new um, Patreon producers since last episode, but that's okay. We've got a great group of folks that are patrons of the show, and if you want to join them, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will, too. Captain, incoming message. All right, we're going to start with item three in the feedback segment. Going to save the first couple for uh, when Rick's back with us. Um, Ethan writes in, Hi, everybody. And the Brit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ouch. Uh, Saw this in... Well, I mean, he said hi to you too. Uh, saw this in Target, uh, which is a um, a store, a uh, department store, I guess you'd call it, wouldn't you? Steph? Target. Target. Target, yes, if uh, you're fancy. Yeah. And uh, and he said he thought of us. Uh, see attached pictures. My commercial check ride is scheduled for August sixth. Any last minute advice? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, well, it's the fourteenth, so I hope it went well. <laughs> try yeah, and so it, old chap. We're we're gonna assume that. Uh, you passed your check ride and you blew them away. Nice job, Ethan. <laughs> I hope so, Ethan. But I'm looking at your sandals here thinking, nah, they're a bit old-fashioned. I like his sandals. Those are good-looking yeah. sandals. And he has nicely, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, manicured, manicured. pedicured um, toes. He wasn't well, at least he hasn't painted them. I, I, yeah, he probably wasn't expecting us to comment on on his on his toes and his sandals. But that's <laughs> well, next the, time, crop your picture. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the risk that you take when you send Ethan. in photos to the ABG. That's anyway, true. He says, um, "Yeah, so um, obviously you didn't need any advice. We're hoping, and uh, so please, you know, send some more feedback in and let us know how you did." And he said, love the show, don't change a thing. And he said that he, uh, so as you mentioned, he saw this at Target and he sent in some photos. I guess I'm going to have to do this, aren't I? So let me share this so everybody can see his photos and his toes. <laughs> um, let's see. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go. And right here, you should be looking at it right now. And uh, so he's looking at the shelf. For $25.49, you save $4.50, is a Pan Am board game. And I don't don't think that um, Ethan is the only one that um, sent this into us. I think somebody else also. I've actually seen a bunch of people have been uh, buying this. But I haven't heard any reviews on the game as to whether it's a game. What is the idea? To see how quickly you can go bust. Yeah, basically. I think (laughs) what I've gathered from it. Like to see how well you can run uh, an airline. That's pretty rude, Nick. But but it's true. Um, 
Yeah, let's see. Triumph in the Golden Age of Air Travel. From island hoppers of the 30s to glamorous jetliners of the 50- 60s, Pan Am set the pace of the airline industry. Complete, or I'm sorry, I have to move this so I can read it. Uh, compete with Pan Am and other players as the head of your own fledgling airline. Expand or 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 uh, railroad, right? Aren't they? Uh, don't they operate diesel locomotives with the Pan Am logo on it? I think I just saw that in the news not too long ago that they were yeah, actually right. selling the the railroad. It's just kind of weird to see Pan Am on a on a on a uh, locomotive. Anyway, um, expand your fleet of planes, build airports, uh, outbid rivals for landing rights, and create your own globe circling air system. Play through decades of air travel history alongside ever growing Pan Am. Make a fortune. When they buy your roots, invest in Pan Am stock when it's cheap, and don't get pushed out of the skies by your competition. Anyway, it looks like a pretty cool board game, and uh, they're, they're the uh, aforementioned sandals and uh, toes, if you take a close look there, if you're watching the video. All right, Ethan, thanks for sending that in. And uh, again, congratulations on passing that check ride. I hope we don't get Absolutely. any feedback. Give us from some us. feedback about the actual check ride. Let yeah. us know how it went. And if you bought that Pan Am board game, let us know how that how that went. Okay, uh, I need to stop sharing the screen. There we go. And uh, I need to um, move on. Oh, you know what? We need to uh, just pause for station identification. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the Queen. Your Majesty. Your Majesty. Oh, thank you. Oh, you. I was going to say, Your Highness. Well, you have to thank you, Your Majesty. No, Your Majesty. Your Majesty. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Wait, just to be clear, you're not talking to me right now, right? No. no. Okay. Let's move you're on. only your highness when you're in the cockpit. <laughs> uh, yeah, they call me other things too, uh, Liz. Uh, Greg writes in. He said, Greg thought this was interesting. Do you all think that this is another example of CRM failure or something else? And this is a glo- uh, flightglobal.com article. And uh, United uh, Boeing 730, no, 777-300. At Sydney on the 22nd of January 2020, unexpected turn causes a loss of separation. Let's see, this is flight uh, 870 on 777 300 registration 2333 uniform from Sydney, New South Wales, in Australia to San Francisco, California. It was climbing out of Sydney's runway 34 left via the RIC 5, and I'm thinking that probably stands for the Richmond 5 departure requiring the aircraft to climb to 1,500 feet MSL on runway heading and not to turn right due to parallel runway operations, like the folks that are taking off on 3-4 right. Then turn left onto a northwesterly heading before receiving radar vectors to turn to the east. The aircraft, however, began to turn right while climbing through 1,600 feet MSL when the aircraft began to right turn. Huh? That seems like a redundant sentence. 
Um, about two minutes prior to the Boeing, a Virgin Australia Aviance de Transport Regional, or we like to call it ATR 72, registration Victor Hotel Foxtrot Victor Quebec, performing flight 1153 from Sydney to Tamworth, New South Wales, had departed Sydney's runway 34 right and was climbing through 1800 feet at the time. Due to, the right turn by, due to the right turn by the Boeing, the separation between the aircraft reduced. Departure control intervened and sent the Boeing onto the left turn, which the crew initiated. Nonetheless, the separation reduced to about 0 feet vertical and 1.3 nautical miles horizontal before the flight paths began to diverge again. Both aircraft continued to their destinations without further incidents. Australian's Transportation Safety Board rated the occurrence a serious incident and opened a short investigation. The TSB wrote, During initial climb, the Boeing 777 turned right, resulting in a loss of separation with the ATR departing from the parallel runway. They just released on the 28th of July their final report, concluding the probable causes of the serious incident were contributing factors. The pilot flying incorrectly amended the flight management computer for the cleared departure. The amended FMC setup was probably not effectively communicated to the crew or effectively cross-checked by the pilot monitoring or relief pilots. The pilot monitoring did not complete a full readback of the radar transition component of the pre-departure clearance, nor did the Sydney clearance delivery controller insist on a full readback. So you see all these little holes in the uh, Swiss cheese out there starting to align. Uh, the Sydney, uh, and th these are things that we do to kind of trap any errors. And these, if they don't do them, then if there's a mistake made, you're not going to trap that error. Uh, the Sydney departures controller observed United 870 turning right and towards the uh, Virgin Australia flight and quickly issued unambiguous and immediate instructions to both aircraft to rec rectify the situation and reestablish the required separation. So that's a thumbs up from the uh, Australian TSB to the uh, controllers. Um, so it looks like, uh, and we could you know, read more here in the report, but we're going to have the entire uh, link to this in the uh, show notes. And again, this is from flightglobal.com. Um, it, it looks like, the captain was expecting to not have to fly the actual transition of this departure procedure. Maybe um, he didn't get to fly this route that often and was not familiar with having to kind of head out kind of in a direction that you're not used to going before you head back out over the water and start heading back towards San Francisco. Um, and uh, he basically didn't enter the proper transition of the departure in the uh, flight management computer and he didn't communicate that with of course if he didn't know he was putting it in wrong then you probably wouldn't say hey by the way i'm just letting you know that i don't think i'm putting in this in the flight management computer wrong <laughs> but the the cross check in this is that the pilot monitoring one of his or her duties is to check to make sure that what's what your pre-departure clearance is uh, it jives with what you have in your flight management computer, and apparently that didn't happen. And one of those, and one of those findings that we just talked about, uh, when the pilot monitoring was reading back the pre-departure clearance, they neglected to read back the transition. So, uh, you know, a lot of things could have been caught 
uh, early on before they even got close to starting engines and taxiing out for this uh, departure. But uh, luckily, the departures were the departure controllers were, you know, aware of what was happening and and were able to uh, keep anything you know from happening uh, untoward. Yeah, this is something uh, it comes back to um, RT and our uh, tendency to often uh, abbreviate what we're supposed to say because it's a bit tedious to put the whole um, you know blurb in there, and we assume that if we've just read back perhaps what we consider the important bit, everyone will assume that we've got all the other stuff taken as read and it's a dreadfully bad habit to get into because I, I know there are some controllers out there and people don't like them who insist on proper call sign the full read back as you're supposed to but that's when these errors are picked up and it may not happen very often but i tell you why if this had been a collision uh, that would have just been awful in comparison with the tedious slightly tedious bit of making sure you follow proper radio procedures and it's one of the reasons i used to get fed up with people who continually abbreviate and shortcut radio calls as well as the standard procedures i don't think it's necessarily a crm thing but the standard procedures of talking through your breathing using the correct page on the box so that people can see exactly which waypoints you're referring to and what you have briefed or planned the aircraft to do in its departure. And that way, some if someone says, well, we excuse me, Skipper, we haven't got the transition in there, um, then that will become obvious. And the guy will go, are you sure we need that? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been here before. We always do the full transition uh, that's when these things are picked up but people sometimes almost embarrassed to do the full thing because they think they're being la laboring the point and it's not it's just being a, a, a professional yeah and you know they so yeah uh, good point I, I don't necessarily believe that this is really a crm issue but more of a following standard operating procedures uh, because, you know, you are required, if you didn't enter the information into your flight management computer, well, then you are the one that has to go in there and make sure that everything that was entered by the other person is correct. And apparently that wasn't done. So. And when uh, the PM, the, the uh, sorry, the pilot flying um, briefed the other two crew members. He did it from an, a picture which gives an overall indication, not the specific waypoint page that he should. And I'm not familiar with the Boeing mm -hmm. uh, FMGS, so it's not the same as the Airbus's. But um, I, I read from the briefing that uh, he used a, a sort of an overall a page that shows the overall uh, data, not each specific uh, waypoint, which would have, and had he done it as he was supposed to done, uh, he would have realized that uh, there were waypoints missing and the transition wasn't in there and he joined the departure straight on to the next waypoint when he should have done, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, going into a little bit more clarity uh, and detail uh, in this article, um, and it's really basically backing up what we were just saying here, the foreign captain was expecting to receive a clearance via the Sydney uh, so this is one of those things, human nature, you're kind of expecting a, a certain departure procedure and they give you one that you weren't expecting. 
And so that that can throw you off. Anyway, he was expecting the Sydney 1 standard instrument departure and had pre-programmed the flight management computer in, in anticipation of this and briefed the other crew accordingly. However, the pre-departure clearance provided by air traffic control was different, the Richmond 5. This was likely due to the captain's limited exposure to the varying Sydney-centric departure procedures. In addition, the clearance included the radar transition procedure, with which the captain was unfamiliar due to the predominant use of procedural-based transitions in the United States. Anything non-standard in departures or arrivals can add additional complexity, but particularly for crew that have very limited experience with the location, such as long-haul foreign crews. Air traffic controllers have an opportunity to take into account the likelihood of a crew's familiarity with the airport when issuing clearances to foreign crews. The clearance meant that the flight management computer needed to be reprogrammed for the Richmond 5. During the process, the pilot flying removed the discontinuity that was automatically generated in the flight management computer flight path. That is the waypoint sequence to the cleared oceanic route. This would have been appropriate for many procedural transitions, but not for a radar transition. The predominance of procedural transitions in the United States likely meant that the pilot flying was focused on removing the discontinuity or the gap, the break in the uh, FMC coding. So, uh, yeah, it just a lot of a lot of things that happened in the very initial planning part of the uh, setup for this flight uh, that weren't, you know, as I said, errors were made that were not trapped because they weren't following uh, their procedures. Yeah. So. All right. You know, you look at it and you're going, I'm going, I'm taking off here and I'm going all the way up to San Francisco. And this thing was going to take me in the completely wrong direction. So. Obviously, they're not going to give us that departure. <laughs> they're going to give us <laughs> the nice, easy happen. one. Why would they do All that? Right, no, right. we'd just like take off, turn right, and head up to San Francisco, you know, passing Hawaii on the way. <laughs> Hang a left at Albuquerque and. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you've gone too far if you've. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, or maybe, no, maybe not. I don't know. No, you've definitely gone too far if you get to. Yeah, you gone too far. <laughs> I mean, if you got to Albuquerque, you would need to hang a left, probably. And yeah, you need to go further north yeah, than yeah, Albuquerque. Yeah. That's for sure. But I think you've gone a little bit too far east. Yeah. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I was trying to remember one of those places. Is it Reno? That if you go due south from Reno, you actually fly west of uh, Los Angeles. Somebody back me up on that one. Uh, it's something uh, that weird. Sounds uh, right. Sure. Yeah. Because yeah. you wouldn't. Why not? In my, in my mind, oh, you're go, looking you up at your. Uh... Idiots, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, you well, know, there's you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of interesting things like that. It's like I was looking at one the other day. It's uh, oh, what is it? When you're in the airport in Detroit, you know, they remind you that your Detroit's in the eastern uh, time zone mm-hmm. because it seems like it should be in the Midwest for some reason. Like, like it should be central time zone. Pensacola. Yeah is central time zone even though that's in florida mm-hmm. yeah just just things that like kind of you know confuse your brain a little bit because you think of how things are in the you know florida is east coast yeah and michigan should be like in the midwest but but yeah. when it comes to time zone stuff i always go to the expert uh miami rick, rick. <laughs> he always is on top of that no <laughs> rick no. knows a lot of things time zones not a strength <laughs> not not so much <laughs> Sorry, Rick. He's not here to defend yeah, himself. Yeah, that's right. But that's, you know. He'll never know. That's what you he, get he, when you're not here. He knows. That'll teach him. He knows. Yeah, that'll teach him. That's I, what don't think he's, I don't think he's worried about it. <laughs> I don't think he'll ever hear this. No. Anyway, 
Uh, anything else to say uh, based on this uh, incident at Sydney uh, from Greg? Hep, is Greg with us today in the live I audience? I don't know. I think yeah, I saw he him was earlier. Early, yeah. He was talking about his uh, donkeys. About 15 trying to minutes keep ago, he dry. was there. So he's probably still there. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope, I hope uh, that answered your question, Greg. Uh, James writes in, James from London, UK. The story of a fly-in cinema in Poland made me smile. Or this story of a fly-in cinema in Poland made me smile. This is from thefirstnews.com. Although it sounds from the article like uh, that's not something new for y'all in the States. And uh, I don't... It sounds new to me. Have you ever I've heard of a I've never seen a fly-in fly cinema. Um, plenty of drive-in cinemas, which drive seem in. to have made a good comeback recently because that's a good way mm-hmm. to hey, just sit in your own car and you don't have to mingle with other people and share germs. So that's definitely been exactly. happening, but I have not seen a fly-in cinema. He says, are you aware of any similar fly-in cinemas taking off? <laughs> Pardon the pun. <laughs> Bam. Uh, where is it? Uh, rim shot. Where's my rim shot? Here we go. Thanks. Or Steph's is actually better. Anyway, uh, love the show. Been with you since APG 407 and have not missed an episode since. Blue skies and tailwinds to you all in these crazy times. And again, that's James from London. And uh, so the article here has some really great photos, and I have never heard of anything like this at all. A very large screen, obviously. Um, They have uh, uh, set up, and instead of cars... uh, Pointed toward the screen, there airplanes parked. They got a nice variety uh, of stuff there. There's like a glider and some sort of helicopter, tail wheel. They've got a uh, damn great big yak biplane. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, is that's that what that? Is. Yeah, that's AN a huge twenty-four airplane. or something. I can't remember. I'll have to Google that. Um, a gyrocopter. See. It looks like. Yeah, it's a it's a hang glider. <laughs> got all sorts of lined up. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you, you need to look at these photos uh, in the show notes, folks, uh, to see this. Apparently, they all wanted to watch Top Gun, but they didn't get to see yeah. that, which was a it's shame. It's an AN2. Yeah, they had, to, nah. they had to settle for a biographical story about the relationship between Colombian drug baron Pablo Escobar and journalist Virginia Vallejo. Uh, the name of the, uh, the film is Loving Pablo, Hating Escobar. <laughs> Has anybody seen that nope. one? No. Nope. I've <laughs> nope. never heard of nope. it. Um, oh, Liz says she has, and she really enjoyed it. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. She didn't say anything. Um, although there have been fly-in cinemas in America and Holland in recent years, this is the first time one has appeared in Poland. And while drive-in cinemas have made a comeback around the world following the closure uh, closing of cinemas due to COVID-19, this is the first fly-in cinema to emerge in response to the crisis. So there you go. I think it's a great idea. They arranged the airplanes in uh, height so that nobody was blocking uh, their view. I, I would imagine that would probably be pretty difficult. Uh, somebody, I'm sure, probably got the bad end of the deal. Uh, oh, it looks like they're, uh, is that a MIG? Yeah, I think. I can't quite tell. <laughs> somebody flew their there. MIG in. <laughs> there is a MIG parked there somewhere just off the left side, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. Thanks for sending that in, James. That is a good, a feel-good story. We can always use feel-good yeah. stories. The next time, maybe they'll show Top Gun. Yeah, then they, everybody would feel good. Um, Sam sent us this. He said, Airbus 
uh, has reported that they have completed their ATTOL, Autonomous Taxi Takeoff and Landing Test Flight Program. An aircraft conducted, uh, this is by the way from Airbus.com, an aircraft conducted six test flights where it was able to take off and land autonomously using data gathered on board, much like a self-driving car. Uh, Sebastian Gigliano, no, Gigliano, Gigliano? The, where did it go? I lost his name. Oh, okay. Sebastian Giuliano, Giuliano. Yeah, see, I had the same trouble with it. Giuliano, Giuliano, yeah. We we just call him um, Sebastian. Seb. Seb. Or Seb uh, of Airbus says that many aircraft are already able to land automatically, but they're reliant on external infrastructure like instrument landing system, ILS, or GPS signals. ATTOL aims, or ATOL maybe, is that the way you pronounce that? Uh, aims to make this possible solely using onboard technology to maximize efficiency and to reduce infrastructure cost. Uh, also, it would be a cool airplane and system to have if uh, the end of the world is coming and you have, you know, yeah, you're not relying on anybody down. or anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Airbus aims to extend this technology to taxiing and also apply it to a wider variety of aircraft, such as small urban air vehicles and large commercial aircraft. Our aim, according to Airbus, is to completely eliminate pilots from airplanes. <laughs> it does not say that. <laughs> I know, well, we I, all I know that. that's their intention. <laughs> but that is the goal. I mean, why else would they Come do on. autonomous taxi takeoff and landing? Come on. There you go. It's to help us find the end of the runway in the fog. Uh-huh. It's those pesky pilots. Got to get way. rid of those people. Yeah, yes. Exactly right. Uh, some nice photos of the uh, Airbus A350-1000. Very beautiful airplane. And, Seems an uh, odd airplane to choose because that's one of the biggest uh, kicking around in the Airbus uh, world now. And uh, it can't be cheap to fly. Why didn't they pick something no. cheap and cheerful if they're just going to put the technology on board? That is, that is a good question that... You should probably call them up and ask them and then report back to us. Um, In the article, I just have highlighted one little thing. Uh, Interestingly, behind the scenes, uh, of so so many things that we've covered so far, uh, usually I'll read pretty much everything except for the part that I actually highlighted, which is (laughs) the indication for me to read that, Jeff, because everything else is not that important. It's read the highlighted stuff, and so far I think I'm zero for... I don't know, five in missing mm-hmm. that. But this, I'm going to get it up to one here. Uh, the, here's the uh, highlighted bit. The key challenge for self-piloting capabilities is how the system reacts to unforeseen events. That's the big jump from automated to autonomous. And we've talked about that on the show before. Uh, you can't possibly come up with every single thing and system or combination of systems that are going to fail or circumstances that you're going to encounter. Uh, it just, it's, I just think it's really impossible to plan for everything that could possibly go wrong. And so that's why I still say that you need a human at least up there just in case uh, something goes wrong so they can use their, their human brain to try to work out the situation. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to work out every time, but at least you have a chance to um, come up with some kind of a solution that the engineers uh, and scientists didn't think about happening, right? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I, I'm i in favor of technology helping the pilot do his job. 
that that's got to be an improvement. And uh, if uh, you know finding the runway and making sure that you do uh, a touchdown on the right place at the right speed, etc., uh, is helped through technology. That's great. Um, but I, I like you, Jeff. I'm not a fan of the idea of uh, pilotless airplanes, and that is where this technology is going. I mean, even look at, you know, they're, they're having a lot of <laughs> major serious issues with the, the whole self-driving car. Thing, to be fair, you know? driving a car is a lot harder than flying an airplane. Sometimes. Yeah, you're right. There are more <laughs> parameters. That, There's an awful lot more things to bump into on the average road than there that's is true. landing an airplane. It's much difficult. Yeah thing to solve exactly. i think you're right so uh, i i think it's relatively simple technology and i think it'll probably work well uh, with a variety of sensors to find the runway environment and uh, work out where to put the airplane but you've got to have a a man behind the wheel uh, you know watching how it works and making sure it's doing a good mm -hmm. job agreed yeah i don't like it in general just don't do you believe like it, Rich, be when charges. he says at least you won't have a navigator to fall asleep? We used to have radios on the Airbus that fell asleep, and that's exactly what they said. The radio can fall asleep, and basically uh, you'd have a quiet software lockup inside your radio that would stop it from uh, receiving any calls, and you'd be driving so along. Be along and yeah, it would be quiet, and you'd, you'd never know. After so, like, you know, some period of time you go, hmm. Haven't heard much for a while. <laughs> been sleepy tonight. Um, yep. You know, you're a boring person when not yeah. only does a person that you're with fall asleep, but the radio does too. Exactly. Yes, and I know. Droned the radio asleep. If you're, if you're playing <laughs> APG through the radio, it's like, oh, okay, nap time. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny. All right. Uh, seven. Lou sent us this. He says... Hello, Liz and the gang. He says, I know who runs the place. Yeah, very sensible. <laughs> uh, in regard to APG 436, in September of 2019, I had a hangar tour of JFK, uh, of American tour at JFK of American hangar. Okay. Um, I guess he had a, a, hang a tour out. of the American hangar at JFK. Yeah. Yes, that's what I'm gathering, uh, and that's A-H-A-N-G-A-R, uh, and did see the Airbus 3, A321 in your American Airlines scrapping plane involved in JFK incident segment. We also got to explore a 777-200 that was in the hangar and a parked 777-300 that was waiting servicing before its return flight that evening for our flying club given by a CFI that works for American Airlines as an AMT. Okay. I really stumped him when we were exploring the 777-200 and asked where the button for the horn was. <laughs> he, 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 he couldn't find it on that plane or the 777-300 and was very upset about it. I digress. <laughs> now, is he joking? Did he really try to find the button for the horn? Maybe he did. Yeah. I don't know. It's a secret hidden button. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've linked a Dropbox folder of some pictures of November 114, November, November. I think that's the, uh, yeah, the American Airlines 321 that was damaged and they decided to scrap. Uh, the damage uh, is more uh, than what actually happened as per the AMT parts were removed. Oh, okay, so that some of these photos look like the uh, wingtip was really mangled, but that's because they, I, th I think they removed some of the um, 
uh, leading edge slat um, segments. Um, so anyway, uh, the repairs were beyond American Airlines JFK base. And the reason the plane was being scrapped was that Airbus would not even certify the airframe, even for a ferry flight to their plant in Mobile, Alabama. Wonder what they they must have looked at the uh, the flight data recorder or something and went yeah no. nope we're well, not flying that thing again. I'd have hoped their uh, engineers would actually have made a physical appearance and looked at it and gone well nah, yeah. this ain't face safe. Yeah, I'm sure they probably did both at least, probably a lot more. Uh, so anyway, he sent these photos and uh, we'll include a link to his feedback in the show notes. But let me just let me just show at least one here that uh, I think that. Uh, you all would enjoy, and I don't think this is the Airbus 321, unless unless uh, Lou is a very very short person. Uh, it's the one of him in the. Um, That's quite a small engine, though. I think a stinky little engine. Yeah, but it's not. But look at the wheels in the background. That looks like a triple seven. Oh yeah, it is. It is definitely the triple seven. It's just that I think he must be quite a big bloke because. Yeah, he is. I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Most of the cabin crew I see when they're standing in those intakes look tiny. There we go. Can we see that now? Mm. Scroll Scrolling it up a bit. Yeah. A bit. There we go. There we ah. go. There is Lou in the, um, in the Lou. intake. In the Lou. <laughs> well, no, it's not Lou. No, those are a separate set of photos he sent. No, I'm just okay. kidding. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, Lou is, yeah, he's not a, um, a small man. He's a, um, looks like he's pretty tall. Oh, he's six foot seven. <laughs> he he says it right That's there. That's what he, oh, sorry, yeah, right it. there, right, <laughs> right below his feet. It says, I've been a patron for a while now, and at six foot seven, it's very hard for me to find a plane I can comfortably fly. Uh, and he said, a classic shot of me and the 777-200 included. I became interested in aviation when my mom, as a teacher, would drive my brother and I to JFK, park on top of the Pan Am terminal and grade papers while I had a great view of the planes as my babysitter. Ah, oh, what a great mom. Uh, keep up the great work. I enjoy the show every week and appreciate all your hard work. Be safe, Lou. So, Excellent, excellent shot. Here's some pretty rare to be allowed up into an engine. So uh, I think that's brilliant. Not many people yep. in the world have got that kind of picture. Nope, I don't have one. Okay. That's because uh, you can't get up into your engines, mate. Yeah, and you have to really scrunch. <laughs> that. Well, you yeah, know, the, yeah. uh, the MD-90, I could probably not stand up, but I could I could get in there for sure. Yeah. Well, even the, the uh, JTAD, I could probably do that too. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, I need a tall ladder to get up there so oh well i'll just have to live without a picture in the intake for now um texas charlie sent us some feedback and he says greetings from the badlands of suburban dallas attached are two new bits of fun first who knew that what we drank as college kids foretold what mad dog pilots would need in 2020 and oh i need to stop sharing here and start sharing this other one there we go boom md 2020 i recognize that bottle (laughs) (laughs) red grape wine i don't really think it was made from grapes not actually seeing anything on the screen jeff you're not no oh i i do 
Yeah, seeing it here. There yeah, it is. Seeing... No, it's a What are you looking at, Nick? No, it's only just a pair. <laughs> you need to minimize the other window that you're multitasking with here. No, it's only just a pair. It was black screen. Don't well, give me that stuff. <laughs> I've been looking okay. at it since he said he had to go across yeah. the Atlantic. You need, to, you need to take your fist and like hit the side of your computer. <laughs> like just the top of it. Jog it back Come on, people. Give it a couple good whacks. Tell them it was so. <laughs> okay. We believe you, Nick. Uh, second attached is one of the best gripe sheet notes that I've seen. What was the best one that you've uh, passed on to maintenance? Okay, so here's the um, discrepancy comment. Lavatory smells worse than a family of road-killed skunks next to a hog farm in Iowa on a hot day in August. Hmm, mm, sounds... <laughs> if, if, uh, if unable to service, suggest digging large hole in which to bury the airplane. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Practical recommendation there. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. That doesn't smell very, That that's not a, my brain is um, trying to process what that smell is. And that sounds very, very unpleasant. Oh, I don't even want to think about it because it's gross. Um, he says, next time you're in town, the scotch, preferably, I have no idea how to pronounce that. L-A-P-H-R-O-A-I-G. Lafrag. Nick? Lafrag? Lafrag. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> Lafrag. Uh, I don't like scotch, so Nick will have to drink all mine. Or it's Liz, a West Coast, scotch. Uh, I think, a Lafrag. Um, so a smoky, peaty um, scotch. That, that's the kind you don't like. Uh, I'm not quite so fond of it. I drink any scotch, but I'm not okay. quite so fond of it as the Spey Valley um, scotches. Uh, but uh, that's just me. Um, ah, um, that I'm just going back to this wine, because those of us who weren't, in college kids in the United States, I'm guessing this was cheap, cheerful stuff you drank as kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, best bang for your buck. Okay. Um, yeah. as well, far as maybe alcohol, not best bang, but just bang. For well, your not buck. best. Yeah. Good just, bang for your buck. Yeah. Uh, not in it, terms it's, of it's quality in terms it's, of, it's not a quantity. fine wine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's very sweet. And has a very high alcohol content. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, yeah. Lane says it's a stretch calling it wine. <laughs> yeah, I know. I. That's why I'm looking at this label. It says red grape wine. And I thought for sure it was like a made from um, like barley, like a, and, and put some flavorings put in it that sort of makes it taste like a wine. I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, anyway. Okay. So for thank record, you, Texas I Charlie, for that. I drank that stuff in college. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, not that I remember, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I did. I don't know. Um, the uh, right up here, by the way, it looks like I, I'll bet this is a uh, Southwest Airlines uh, logbook because the flight was going uh, to Las Vegas and to Burbank. Mm, see that I see up, that upper right hand mm-hmm. corner. Two thousand eight. That's the the airline that comes to mind to me. It sounds like something they might write in a. Logbook. Yeah. Those guys. All right. Guys and gals. Um, Ben writes in, listening to Tom from Columbia's audio feedback this week, I was reminded of an interaction I had a few months ago. Uh, Ben Granucci, director and senior editor at nycaviation.com. I'm sure that many people that listen to the show have heard of Ben. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when I'm not tending to NYC Aviation, I make my living as a lighting technician and programmer. For the past many months, 
That has included work in the news studio for a major broadcast network. One night, I was in the break room and happened to have one of my NYC Aviation shirts. The guy across the table asked me what NYC Aviation was, and we proceeded to chat about our shared interest in airplanes. After a bit, he invited me back to his editing station, where he showed me the collection of airline B-roll he had amassed. Is it like inviting you up to my flat to see my etchings? Uh, huh? Mm, I don't, not quite the same. Oh, okay. No. Um, Anyway, it's somewhat similar, but not quite the same. He told me that he had become frustrated with seeing all of the old footage littered with past liveries and retired aircraft types. So he grabbed a video camera, went down to the airport, and shot some fresh footage. Now the network has a library of clips to use that look like they aren't from the 1990s. <laughs> Good job. But you know what? They're still probably picking the wrong ones. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're newer airplanes. They're still just the wrong one. <laughs> they're, they're still wrong, but they're newer wrong. <laughs> Uh, hope you're all well, Ben Granucci. Again, he's the director and senior editor at New York City Aviation or NYCAviation.com. Very cool. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, and B-roll, I, I guess, stands for background roll, right? That stuff that you see B-roll, when you're telling yeah, a story. That's stuff that's in the, yeah, the stock footage. I think that's what the B stands for, yeah. right? Background. I, yeah. I'm not certain on that, but. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll stake sounds, my life on it. sounds plausible. Or yours. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute! I don't like this arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. it's nice that someone's uh, making an effort. That's true. the most important thing is to label it properly. That's the hard bit. Yes, 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 yes. Well, we appreciate it. And it sounds like you know if he's concerned about it, that perhaps if he's the one doing the picking of the footage to use, he's doing it correctly. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know that you know there there is some hope, some positive stuff out there in the world of journalism. <sighs> okay. Um, Justin sent us some audio feedback. Let's listen to what he has to say. Hello, APG crew. This is Justin, cargo guy from Frankfurt. I just wanted to say that I really love your show and I'm looking forward to it every single week. It's uh, one and a half hours pure entertainment to me. So thanks for that. Um, yeah. Anywho, um, the last few episodes, I sensed a little Boeing animosity from you. So um, there, I think we should maybe strive for a more balanced view um, and really showing the Boeing superiority um, and making it clear to everybody. Um, I'm not saying that Boeing is perfect. I mean, they had their setbacks, um, but by far, I think there were uh, much more success stories um, of course, to mention all of them would certainly max out the time of the show. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but I think we should also not forget that Airbus aircraft have their faults too. Um, I don't think it's a, co a coincidence, for example, that uh, Pan Am in 84 introduced Airbus aircraft to their fleet and only seven years later went belly up. So um, same is true for Air Berlin. They switched from 737s to A320s. And where are they now? Uh, and of course, not to forget the miracle on the Hudson. Uh, so also an Airbus aircraft. I rest my case. Hmm. Coming to think of it, uh, maybe I'm a Boeing MAGA guy, making Boeing great again, sticking to Boeing no matter how bad they screw up. In that spirit, 
um, if it's a Max Boeing, we all ain't going. <laughs> Over and out. Bye bye. I think that was a little tongue in cheek, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, I think possibly. Uh, nice try, though, Justin. <laughs> Yeah, I had a good laugh when I when mm-hmm. I first listened to Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. So this is why I we think need, we're, you know, actually, we I think the reason to... Pan Am went bust yeah. was because uh, if you look at the movie uh, 2001, they were already investing in uh, spaceships. So um, that was their mistake. I mean, they should have waited a bit, but there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, seriously, um, in the movie 2001, the, uh, the spaceship that takes uh, everyone... Up to this was that a Pan Am? It's been so long since I've seen Pan Am logo on the side. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah, that's right. Um, Steph, you were going to say something about Rick. uh, Oh yeah, I mean, you know, to to get that balanced uh, view back. Oh yeah, very balanced. (laughs) (laughs) And by balance, I mean completely (laughs) one-sided. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we we've been doing a pretty good job recently of trying to be even even-handed, I think, in regard to Boeing versus Airbus. I mean, I oh, think golly, we, yes. don't you? I'm, I think we I, just talk about things as they happen and, you know. Yeah, no doubt yeah. about it. I mean, I think we're all probably easier with the airplanes we've flown and have experience with. Uh, but it's not to mean that we don't understand the flaws because, uh, you know, every airplane has its problems, regardless who makes it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, thank you, Justin, for sending in that audio feedback. I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Thank you, Radio Roger. Uh, Rich from Sheffield. I believe he's still with us in the uh, live audience. Yes. He says, hi, Jeff, Nick, Steph, Rick, and Liz. Hope you're all well. I'm writing this whilst sweltering in the heat in Sheffield, UK, and trying to work from home whilst listening to APG. This is probably one solely for Nick, mm. but just a quick one. And this one may have been discussed previously. I'm pretty sure... It will have been, and as I've only been listening since March this year, so we'll probably catch up on it while working on or working my way through the show's history. As the side stick in the modern Airbus is on the left for the captain and right for the FO, how does this affect piloting when the pilot in control is flying on their non-dominant side? I'm right-handed and have tried flying a commuter computer sim using a joystick in my left hand, and let me tell you, you would not have wanted to be aboard those flights. You know, we have talked about this before, so let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Great. No, obviously we're gonna we're gonna yeah t- we're gonna talk about this. Nick can Nick can <laughs> share talk his about view it and um, supplies to some GA <laughs> aircraft as well. So I can add. Oh in yeah, some okay. We we get uh, Steph's perspective mm-hmm. on this as well. Um, so he continues. Uh, our potential pilots particularly scrutinized on their handling when using non-dominant side and training. Oh yeah. They're given a rash of crap for the bad handling <laughs> skills for sure. Or is the rumor true that they are just for show and, and Airbus pilots just press the three buttons, take off, go to go to and land. 
Yeah, I know. Like okay. You've got an extra button in there that oh, I don't yeah. know anything gotcha. about there. That's <laughs> the old the new go to button. Everyone just knows. You press take off <laughs> and it, you know. Go to the place we're supposed to go to. It, it but, magically knows your destination. Yes. Then when you arrive, just uh, make sure you hit that land button. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it'll just Don't forget forward. that one. It's like, we're here. Yeah. Would you like to, you know, Yeah, like it's ground? got the intelligence to take you off around the world, but it can't work out that it's now time to land. Nah. That's I the mean, one. That's what that's happened to the, the Northwest Airlines pilots uh, when they flew past Minneapolis-St. Paul. They just fell asleep. <laughs> No, no, no. They forgot to push land. the land button. <laughs> they they Come lost on. their checklist. They fell asleep and, they going, and forgot to push the land button. Hmm, there's <laughs> another step here, surely. He says, I love the show and always try to listen live when able. And he is listening live to us at this moment. Blue skies, tailwinds, etc. Richard Stork, rich in Sheffield, recently diagnosed with a chronic case of APG syndrome. Hmm. And we're, we're sad to hear that. So uh, okay, so I'm now I'm going to sit back and listen to my wonderful co-hosts. Yeah. I don't know. What do you want to say, Steph? Oh, I was going to say this applies to the Cirrus as well. If you're sitting in the left seat of the Cirrus SR20, SR22, you've got a side stick controller there, um, which obviously will operate with your your left hand. Um, I don't know. I didn't have any any issue with it. I think it's something that you think about maybe beforehand. Like, well, that's kind of maybe a little odd. But, I mean, any aircraft, if – I'm trying unless you're sitting in the right seat um you're going to be operating you know your your controls your control column your yoke your the stick whatever it is with your your left hand primarily no I never use my left hand you just <laughs> I just like go right of the yoke and then hit the <laughs> throttles and then back you're just on doing one of these I hope nothing things, happens <laughs> like all twisted and pretzel around I use my yeah. elbows and I think it's not so much a matter up. of just using the left hand for for that it's just that you in your mind, you think it's going to be somehow different in terms of the feel of the control. And no, no, I think the brain is pretty, pretty quick to adapt to that. Yeah. I think anytime you're going to have to use the throttle with your right hand, whatever you've got with a stick, a yoke, a side stick, you're going to have to do that with your left hand. And if you're jiggling the throttles as you should be and uh, doing a bit of this, with your yoke. Throttle? Yeah. All right. Thrust lever. <laughs> uh, it could be a throttle because you could be yeah. in a Cessna. It could and be I learned in, a ah, that's Cessna with a throttle okay. and okay. a yoke. So, uh, Give you 50% on that one. Thanks. Um, I needed that. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's. I don't think it's any big deal because if you, you, you sit in the left side when you're a student in a Cessna yeah. 150 year. Seven yep. one seven two. Well, sure. you're going to start to learn to fly using your left hand uh, to work the controls on mm-hmm. the approach. I mean, you can take your hand off throttle for a moment if you need both hands, but not for long because you really do need to have your hands on that throttle in case it moves itself or you need to move it. So, yeah, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I did suffer a little bit of concern. I certainly, my left hand, after... 20 years in the Air Force, and if you're in a military airplane, you've got a stick and a throttle because there's, you know, only one of you in the cockpit. And um, you're going to have the stick in the right hand, throttle in the left hand. So after 20 years of doing that, and then a few more years in the first officer seat, I did have a moment of concern about left hand flying again. I hadn't done it for quite a while. but um, I, And I didn't have the same fine motor skills 
pardon me, that I had developed in my right, right hand, but it didn't take long to develop enough to be able to work. As regards special training or testing, nah. Uh, you sit in the simulator, they'll soon work out if you can't fly left-handed. <laughs> and they quietly just get rid yeah, of you. Yeah, they'll, they'll just... Never to be heard yeah, of again. You'll, you'll just quite get a few Fs and then... They disappeared. Be Hi, thanks for coming. <laughs> so now I'm just thinking about... Um, to like Piper Cub or similar aircraft like that, where you have the throttle actually on the left side of the cockpit and you've got, you know, a center stick. Um, it's just, it's just making sure you're familiar with what's going on and you're, you know, it's like patting your hat head and rubbing your, your stomach, right? Like make sure your hands are doing the right things on the controls. Uh, I think Romero has a good comment. Oh, you yeah. just put it up there. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's well done, Romero. Right-handed, and I drive my I, car with my left hand when I text. Yeah, it's not very good. comfortable. Right. Right. We uh, we do not endorse this, for the record, from the APG. Uh, no, that's uh, we do not endorse that at all. Uh, also, Chris says, if there are three plus pilots on a flight, will any of the pilots end up sitting on both sides during one flight? And the answer to that is, if he's big enough, yes. <laughs> oh, he didn't mean at the same time. <laughs> well, any of the pilots? Oh. Yes, of course. Uh, if you've got a relief pilot, uh, one nice. relief pilot, he will um, give relief. Uh, well, that's what she said. Uh, family show. <laughs> to both pilots at different times during the flight. So Ooh. he will oh. sit in the left seat when he uh, gives relief to the captain, and he'll sit in the right seat when he gives relief to the first officer. So, yes, he will sit in both seats. At the same time. Nah, a bit okay. Hard, that bit. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else that we didn't cover, uh, Rich? He's, he's here in the live audience, so he can let us know if we missed anything. I don't think so. You know, I think it's just one of those things where people – I mean, I I remember being not apprehensive about it, but wondering about it myself when I transitioned from right seat to left seat. But then I think we make more of it than we really should mm -hmm. because it's really not that big of a deal. You get used to it like that, as yeah, Steph said. I think it's about Our brains people's concern adapt. of moving from a, um, a yoke to a side stick. Uh, it takes mm -hmm. two minutes to get the feel of it. And yeah. then mm -hmm. you go, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, it's just I got this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And I, I will say, you know, he's <laughs> just bringing up the point of doing it on the computer sim with a joystick. Uh, those don't give you, I mean, unless you have a very, very realistic joystick, it's not giving you the same feedback on the controls. Um, and depending on, you know, how your computer's processing all those movements, it's never, it's not the same. Well, you're saying that the side stick on an Airbus is better than the side stick controller or joystick on a computer? Yes. Really? Oh, yes. Okay. Just want to be. Clear. I just want to be fair and balanced to Airbus here. Expensive. <laughs> a little bit more. A lot more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, uh, no, you'd you'd have to have be have an extreme. Um, oh no! I've put highlighted the wrong one there. Um, Rick was asking about um, one hand dominance. You'd have to have an extreme form of dominance in one side of your body not to be able to produce a reasonable uh, flying skill from the other hand i think mm -hmm. so i'll tell you i'm i consider myself very right side dominant like right hand dominant 
right foot too. Different for different discussion. Uh, mostly relates to snowboarding and wakeboarding. But anyway. Um, oh, you, you know, goofy. Think what the funny goofy. goofy the term is right. goofy. Go- yeah. yeah, goofy yeah. foot. Yeah. Uh, that's the way I do goofy a Goofy stuff. Goofy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Can um, we have a, a new show title? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you if you'd like. Um, but yeah, I, I I think you'd have to be like Nick said. I think most people are going to do just fine, no matter which seat you're in. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. Uh, moving on to Greg. And he said, I missed the live chat when you guys got to my feedback. This is the last show, I believe. I was on early in the show, but had to leave. I think the majority of this is non-aviation related, so there may not uh, there may be no need to read this one on the show, but we're going to do it anyway because I thought it was interesting. Uh, Steph, uh, Mammoth Cave is back open. I th- That's a national hmm. park in Kentucky. Kentucky. It's where the mammoths come um, from. No, he's going to set well, us straight. Wait, he's, got, he's got feedback <laughs> for you on this one, Nick. So anyway, let's stick with Steph for this, now. So this, is, this is interesting uh, for you. Yeah, I didn't either. I really did think there must be mammoth bones. Oh, yeah, or like some sort of prehistoric. That's, that's kind yeah. of what I thought. I looked into it. Sure. Anyway, I think there are a limited number of tours that are operating, but some of the most common ones are operating again. They highly recommend getting tickets in advance rather than purchasing when you arrive. Yes, after we talked about so it on the show, I, I did look that up and I saw that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this is for Nick. Mammoth Cave is considered to be the longest cave system in the world, hence the name Mammoth. There are over 400 miles of mapped cave, and they believe that there could be another 600 miles of cave still to still to be mapped. Wow. You've pulled uh, actually, that I'd... straight out of uh, doi.gov. That's, that's an absolute quote here. I've got that quote right here. Oh, di- okay. Out of what, Gov? Department uh, of the Interior. Oh, Department of the Interior. Yeah, that's I've right. never heard of it. DOI? Well, no one calls it DOI. <laughs> DOI? That gov. Yeah. Um, I was reading the actually, address of the blog. So you don't, you don't get that past me, Greg. You're just giving me government blurb. Oh, he probably knew that. <laughs> Greg's a pretty smart guy. Um, actually, he's going, well, I don't know. Is it named after the mammoth or the woolly mammoth or not? Um. Let's see. Actually, I do have one little piece of aviation-related feedback. You were talking about the transportation of animals. One of the foremost aerial transporters of horses is headquartered here in Lexington, Kentucky, at the Bluegrass Airport. Oh, I'm proud. Uh, Kilo Lima X-Ray. Oh, Echo X-Ray. <laughs> K-Lex. The company is Tex Sutton Equine or Equine Air Transportation. Uh, Tex sutton.com they use a modified 727 i do remember seeing that there when we used to fly into uh, lexington they use a modified 727 affectionately known as air horse one (laughs) to transport (laughs) thoroughbred horses all over the world check out their website and the about us tab to find out some really interesting information about how they transport the horses although they don't really address what they do with the doo-doo (laughs) <laughs> what, what do, do they, they do, do with the doo-doo? I'd like to point out that those mammoth caves uh, boast um, a rich uh, number of uh, caven... <laughs> I can't pronounce the word. Cavernicolorius. Cavernicolorius. Can someone check in on Nick? I think having a stroke. <laughs> 14 species of troglobites. 
animals that oh, need to live in caves and troglophiles animals that can live in or outside caves are known to exist there uh including the woolly mammoth so there you go hang on i think my radio is falling asleep. <laughs> yes well do you know the difference though between a stalactite and a stalagmite yeah tights come down yes. mm -hmm. okay good Just <laughs> ah. oh wait a minute wow show. all right yes Family uh, show. Family That's not the the <sighs> learning tool. I have to remember them either. But <laughs> well, I'll, I'll never forget. I've never heard of that. But now I'll never now you'll never forget. forget. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, quickly before we get to the uh, plain tales, let's do this from New Zealand Rob NZ Rob or New November Z Rob Acme Wing Baby. He says hi, Captain Jeff, and the rest of the great APG crew and community. First, I must apologize for bringing the accuracy of the show below the 50% Ooh. mark with my last Like we've never feedback. done that. Yeah, it's nothing we can't do nope. on our own. Don't worry. No, it's all the listeners that bring us down. Yeah. That's Not it us. Is. Definitely. Um, get rid of it. them. Yes. <laughs> Wait a minute. Just do the show into like. That's not a good idea. <laughs> we'll do all the work. We'll record and then I just won't publish it. That's yeah. a good idea. That's I like it. I like it. I mentioned using the U.S. Antarctic program, uh, Operation Deep Freeze, way back in the late 70s. I'm sorry, did I say using? I mentioned visiting the U.S. Antarctic program, Operation Deep Freeze, way back in the late 70s, and said the included cockpit photo was that of a C-141 Starlifter that often visited the Christchurch base. That was wrong. Captain Rick was correct, of course. The photo shows a 747. I must have been taken around a similar time. I guess that's what 40-odd years does to your memory. Anyway, I hope I... Didn't you have any normal years? No, even no, ones. I think they were mostly... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hope I brought things back above 50%. Uh, Mark mentioning New Zealand has some of the best beers in the world. Okay, wait. Yep. We have confirmation we're above 50%. Thank you. On another note, in episode 437, while talking about Ajax and Acme Airlines, you mentioned how Acme, in fact, makes a number of other products. I was just wondering if any of you had deployed the device shown in the attached picture and how effective this might have been. Hmm. I don't know. So, we're, um, so our live audience can see this. We'll go ahead and share it so this is where we used to keep the is... relief first off so <laughs> really that's interesting just make sure they get some fresh air yeah like uh... well we didn't want him to take up a passenger seat no, no, there we no. go do you revenue, see it nick revenue loss exactly do you see the is your screen do you see the blank screen? nick yep. or... no it's, it's worked this time oh good okay so this uh is a cartoon a gary larson cartoon um, and there's a man looking out the window. And he says, see that little kid out there, Ricky? He wouldn't stop crying either. <laughs> and there's a little tether to the wingtip, and uh, on the end of the tether is a little baby, and it's the wing, the Acme. Uh, let's see, by simply attaching the new Acme wing baby, airlines can significantly approve their passengers' overall comfort. Brilliant. Very cool. Is it like a suction yeah. cup to his head? Think so. Yeah, it looks like mm -hmm. it. Seems it secure. Be a very strong yeah. suction cup. Anyway, that's very, very cute. Thank you, New Zealand Rob, for that. And wow, this is perfect timing. I think uh, it's now 
time for this week's installment of The Plain Tales. And this one's entitled The Secret Life of 60528. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Secret Life of 60528. Back in 1997, on a sliver of land, wedged between a gas station and a car park, a lone C-130 Hercules could be found. It was mounted there near the entrance to the National Security Agency at Fort Meade in Maryland, for a good reason. Not the original aircraft, as that crashed on foreign soil, but it had been painted with the same tail number, 60528 to represent it. It was perhaps an unusually bold memorial to some of the most highly classified missions ever flown by the United States. Missions that, over the years, cost the lives of more than 200 American servicemen, the secret casualties of the Cold War. The Cold War was more than the nuclear threat of two superpowers confronting each other, the posturing and concealment, the menace and bluster. There was a real conflict going on, hidden from the public's view. For decades, NATO servicemen put their lives on the line, and in some cases they made the ultimate sacrifice. So it was for the crew of the Hercules number 60528. The crew met in the mess hall at Ingelic Air Base at an ungodly hour in the morning of September 2nd, 1958. Seventeen men whose tour of duty in Turkey was awful at the best of times. They finished eating their breakfast of powdered eggs and thick black Turkish coffee and climbed into the crew truck which dumped them on the area of tarmac reserved for American aircraft. The men were divided into two camps, the front six crewmen who flew the aircraft and the eleven back-enders who were the reconnaissance specialists, manning the highly sophisticated electronic snooping equipment in the belly of the Herc. It was an interesting mix as the groups worked for different headquarters and those in the front weren't allowed to know what the specialists in the back were doing. Even stranger was that the enlisted men in the back were often the ones giving instructions to the officers in the front. Their aircraft, 60528, had only arrived the previous day, brand new out of the States, with only 200 hours on the clock. It was a state-of-the-art machine, but was already proving to be troublesome, as the mechanics tried to get it serviceable for the mission without much luck. They were going to be delayed. The flight crew were experienced and capable. Their navigator was considered the best of an excellent bunch, and he had a lot of experience in the Turkish theatre of operations. The commander was a veteran pilot, but not on this aircraft, nor in this area, but he was being assessed by a more senior pilot prior to an upgrade. Instead of their usual missions out over the Black Sea to eavesdrop on Soviet Air Force pilot chatter, They were planning to fly along the eastern border of Turkey, concentrating on Soviet military emissions in Georgia and Armenia. 
They were going to be particularly interested in the new SS-4 Scud missiles that were suspected to be in those areas. They had other standing orders as well, and by coming close to the border, and in some cases deliberately crossing it, they would be painted by Soviet air defence radars and missile tracking radars. By receiving these emissions, they could gain valuable information on radar frequencies and the like that could be used to program American jamming transmitters. Today's flight would take them northeast, up across Kayseri Beacon, to Trabzon on the Black Sea coast, about a 100 miles from the Russian border. From there they would head southeast for Lake Van, opposite the border with Soviet Armenia, and fly a figure of eight pattern between Van and Trabzon, listening and picking up data until they needed to head home. All told, about an eight-hour mission. Delayed by the unserviceable aircraft, they didn't get airborne until a little after 11.20 in the morning, and expected to return around 7.40 in the evening. Shortly after noon, they made a report to the civilian air traffic controller and called over Trabzon at flight level 255. On the other side of the border, the Soviet 29th Radio Technical Station was tracking the Hercules, and they noted that it was flying well to the east of Trabzon, on a course that would take it overhead the Soviet city of Batumi on the Black Sea coast. The radar operators watched the American aircraft turn to fly parallel to the Soviet border and climb. They didn't consider the single aircraft a threat yet, as it was still within Turkish airspace, but it was approaching the Armenian border. Then it turned onto a course of 140 degrees towards the Soviet border. The Soviet zone commander immediately ordered the duty pilots of the 117th Fighter Aviation Regiment to take off. As the Soviet military radar stations continued to plot the position of the Hercules, the MiG-17 fighters tried to get airborne. But the Leninakan airfield was in the middle of a dust storm, so aircraft from the Yerevan airfield were scrambled as well. Finally, all four MiGs were airborne and being vectored onto the stray C-130. On board the Hercules, it was quite possible for the specialists in the back to monitor and translate the radio transmissions being given to the intercepting fighters, but in all probability, lacking the frequency agile equipment of today, they weren't listening to the right frequencies at this crucial time. Even if they had been, it's quite possible that the crew were accidentally off course, so it's doubtful that they would have realised that they were the ones in danger. It appears that, despite his skill and experience, the navigator may have been fooled by a beacon across the border that was transmitting on the same frequency as Trabzon, and had been lured or just mistakenly taken his aircraft into a terrible and dangerous situation. The radar controllers guided the MiGs unerringly into position, and the lead fighter pilot reported seeing the target, a large one, at 10,000 metres, just as it crossed the border. The MiG-17s descended onto the Hercules and intercepted it. The flight leader made a quick pass, firing his guns, but instead of obeying the implied instruction to follow the fighter and land, 
the Hercules pilots followed their standing orders and turned sharply away, diving to the west. The Soviet pilots, familiar with the area, confirmed that they and the C-130 were on the Soviet side of the border, marked by the prominent Arpa River, which they called the Fence, and with the C-130 trying to escape, they were immediately told to engage. The leader told his wingman, Attack, attack, 218, attack! A missile rocketed from the MiG-17, hitting the American aircraft's tail and severely damaging the fin, followed by gun attacks from the other fighters. Again and again the lumbering Hercules was raked with cannon fire as it corkscrewed down. The Soviet pilots reported, The target is burning! It's heading towards the fence! And then, The target has lost control! It's going down! With its right wing ablaze and its controls shot away, 60528 spiralled into the ground amongst the foothills of the Adagat Mountains, 28 miles inside the Soviet border. The Soviet engagement of the Hercules was far from uncommon or unexpected, particularly since the aircraft had unequivocally crossed into Soviet airspace. Other NATO aircraft had been casualties of Soviet aggression in far less clear circumstances. In 1950, a US Navy Neptune anti-submarine aircraft working off the coast of Vladivostok was engaged by four Soviet MiG-15 Fagot jet fighters. When the fighters got too close, the tail gunner of the Neptune fired a burst of 20mm cannon shells in what was supposed to be a warning shot, but when one of the MiGs exploded, the Neptune dove for the deck and escaped. The next year, two Soviet Lavochkin LA-11 fighters engaged and shot down a Neptune near Vladivostok, killing all ten on board. The Soviets claimed that the aircraft was intercepted seven to eight miles off the coast and it crashed 18 miles from the shore. The US Navy publicly claimed that the aircraft was engaged in a weather reconnaissance flight and only after the Cold War ended did it admit that the Neptune was on a signals intelligence collection mission. In 1953, an RAF Lincoln, a development of the famed Lancaster, was shot down by a Soviet MiG-15 whilst transiting between Hamburg and Berlin in the Berlin Corridor. At the time, the Soviets were being described as particularly aggressive towards the West, having shot down an American fighter and attacked other Allied military and civilian aircraft over the previous few days. Some of the crew managed to bail out, but German eyewitnesses claimed that they were strafed and killed in their parachutes by one of the MiGs. The Soviet news agency claimed that the aircraft was flying over the GDR and had shot at the fighters. Churchill, the Prime Minister, replied that the Lincoln was not armed and it was within the agreed air corridor. All seven crew members were killed, the bodies of the crew and the wreckage of the aircraft were returned within days of the incident 
together with an uncharacteristic expression of regret from the Soviet authorities. A 1954 saw another Navy Neptune attacked and downed in the Sea of Japan 40 miles off the Soviet coast. Severely damaged, the crew ditched the aircraft and nine out of the ten crewmen were rescued by a USAF Grumman SA-16 Albatross. But sadly, Ensign Paul Reed drowned in the sinking aircraft. He had been pushing out a life raft and encouraging others to escape when the aircraft suddenly disappeared into the depths, trapping him inside. The losses would continue throughout the Cold War, which didn't formally end until the reforms that President Gorbachev introduced within the Soviet Union in 1991. Many American flights by purpose-built spy planes such as the U-2 and SR-71 were conducted over Soviet airspace, which violated the sovereignty of the Soviet state and certainly didn't comply with international law. One of these was brought down, the aircraft flown by CIA pilot Gary Powers. So determined were the Soviets to end these flights that they killed one of their own pilots in an attempted intercept. The Russian Air Defence Forces had launched 14 Divina missiles, known in the West as the SA-2, at Powers aircraft, one of which hit a MiG-19 jet fighter, which was sent to intercept the U-2, but could not reach a high enough altitude. Its pilot ejected but died of his injuries. Another pilot would have given his life as well. A newly manufactured Sukhoi Su-9 was transiting the area and ordered to attempt an intercept. Since the Sukhoi was unarmed, the pilot was ordered to ram the U-2. Closing it over Mach 1, he failed to hit the spy plane due to the enormous speed difference. Powers was only flying at Mach 6 and the lack of manoeuvrability at such great altitude. When 60528 crashed, the entire aircraft exploded, blowing the cockpit area off the front of the fuselage. There was an intense fire, and the remains of the aircraft and crew were burnt to cinders. Without even the chance to put out a mayday call, 17 men were dead. Despite the earlier engagements, this was the first American reconnaissance aircraft to crash on Soviet soil, shot down by Soviet defences. Back at their base, the commanders were becoming worried that the Hercules hadn't returned on time, but they faced an unexpected problem. The classification of the mission was so high that some units weren't authorised to communicate adequately with others, and as a result, important information was withheld and in some cases deliberate cover-ups occurred. It didn't help that some of the rear crew weren't even in the same force. However, they were quickly and retroactively transferred to the same unit as the air crew to disguise their association with the security services. On the western side of the border, nobody even knew where the wreckage was located, and the Soviets were denying any involvement. 
All that the Air Force could say was that the aircraft was missing, which was the truth, although they had their suspicions. An intensive search was carried out for days, the searching aircraft scouring the wooded valleys of Turkey, looking for the smallest sign of the crashed aircraft, but to no avail. They had no clue that the wreck was miles away in Armenia. The press began to speculate about the search area being close to the Soviet border, and they reminded their readers about previous hostile acts by Soviet forces. Many of the missing men had been married, one about to join his new bride, but all their loved ones were told was that the flight had been reported missing. After a week, the search was called off. About the same time, a radio Morse code intercept began to reveal that MiG fighters had been vectored to a spot near the border and had shot down an aircraft. As more intercept information came forward, the picture became clearer and President Eisenhower was briefed. And it was finally revealed that Turkish border guards had observed the entire incident, reporting that no parachutes were seen. Finally, the last part of the puzzle fell into place when it was discovered that a Turkish intercept site had recorded all the VHF radio communications between the Soviet pilots. At the highest levels of command, the fate of 60528 was now known, but had the crew survived? That was still an unanswered question. Ten days after the shootdown, the Soviet Foreign Ministry handed in a note to the American Embassy in Moscow advising them that a burned aircraft and six bodies had been found near the Armenian border. The US government gave a press release which indicated that the aircraft had crashed in Armenia and six of the 17 crew were dead. How the families of the crew must have felt not knowing who might have survived is awful to consider. The reason for the crash wasn't given. To be fair to the Soviet doctors who attended the site, the fire at the crash had been so intense that only six bodies could be identified as human remains and nothing could be found of the others. The bodies of the six crew were returned to the United States, but it wasn't until 40 years later and after the fall of the Soviet Union that the fate of the remaining 11 could be determined. A US excavation team found evidence of hundreds of skeletal fragments, but only two could be definitely identified. Finally, a group burial for the crew of 60528 was conducted at Arlington National Cemetery, and the mystery laid to rest. Sadly, if you head to Fort Meade to see the Hercules, you'll currently be disappointed, since the National Vigilance Park was closed in February 2017 and its aircraft and memorials removed. The replica Hercules was too fragile to survive, but the National Cryptological Museum hopes to acquire a replacement when it eventually reopens. Wow, 
Another really, really interesting, compelling story. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I know these uh, these stories that come out well after the event when eventually documents are released. Um, they don't hit the headlines in the same way they would have done at the time. So you you do um, eventually find out about them through really devoted historians who trail through these documents and try and find out what happened. And then eventually the units themselves uh, um, make public uh, and start acknowledging some of the people who um, perished while they were doing these, what were at the time considered vitally important missions. We, we have to remember that, uh, you know, this is in the 50s. This is only like 10 or 12 years after the end of the Second World War. And uh, the Soviet Union were at the time considered the next major threat. So um, commands wanted information, and they were willing to put men's lives on the line to try and obtain it, even in these entirely unsuitable aircraft. Initially, Neptunes and uh, Herks uh, doing spy missions. I mean, they weren't stealthy. They weren't. They were slow. They were vulnerable. They <laughs> they were unsuited, really. They were just big platforms that could hold a lot of equipment. Um, it's hardly surprising. But um, equally, um, the Soviets guarded their borders with ferocity, which was well known. So, you know, you, you approach them with real care. And it's uh, sad that, uh, you know, a number of these instances uh, involve the loss of life. Hmm. Well, I'm, sadly, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it because as soon as we started playing Plain Tales, my internet, like, oh, really? stopped working wow. for some reason. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? I thought that was from earlier when yeah, you first were joining us. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, as soon as you went to the, and then it, it just, everything, for it's, I couldn't hear anything. And I was like, Trying to be like, do I let them know that I can't hear anything? And then I realized I was the one that was frozen, and I had a little thing pop up that says, oh. you appear to be offline. I said, no, no. So I Don't reset worry. things, and I hopefully, yeah. fingers crossed, it continues to work for the rest of the show. This says it was the Russians that did it. <laughs> I definitely. They were, they were going to shoot definitely. you down if you had been up in the Kodiak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, you guys lost, uh, well, there were lost in the NATO forces uh, over 200 personnel, which, you know, is a little war all in its own, considering the Cold War was not supposed to be a fighting war. It's incredible now that we know more about these things. Uh, very sad, but there you go. It's yeah. history. It is a sad thing. Wars are, well, what do you what do you guys say? All right. Um, thanks you. Thank you, Nick, for that. It was very interesting. And let's move on with uh, this audio feedback from Tillman. Hi, APG crew and community. This is Private Pilot Tillman from Berlin, Germany. Following up on your discussion on APG 437, I just wanted to share an experience about the change of shipping times during COVID. A regular letter from the States to Germany usually takes about six days. A small package like a birthday gift or something about 10 days, sometimes two weeks. During COVID, this has changed a lot. 
Our friend Pasadena Brian has sent me a small parcel, like a padded envelope, actually. He posted it in, you guessed it, Pasadena, California, on May 6th. And after a while, both of us basically gave up hope and thought it was lost. Until it finally arrived in Berlin on July 1st, almost two months after it had been posted. Now, that is very unusual and I'm willing to bet that the delay is due to the very limited number of planes carrying mail. By the way, Brian sent me a handmade aviation-themed face mask. I'll include a picture of me wearing it and a COVID haircut. Also, if you are not one of the lucky ones who got a mask sent from Brian for free, you can order it in his Etsy shop at TAB Fabric. That's Tango Alpha Bravo Fabric. Proceeds go to the Pasadena Women's Shelter. All the best, blue skies and appropriate immunities, Tillman. Okay, so I get it. So if you say something nice about his face masks, he gives you one for free? Or if he gives you one for free, then you have to uh, <laughs> advertise for it. I don't know. I don't. I, have you gotten <laughs> any of you guys gotten one? Well, I mean, there's there's no free lunch. Uh, actually, I haven't. And um, Brian, now I just uh, remember that this was a while ago. He did send me the link to all that stuff. And I was, I think I was out on the track running and I was like, yep, I'll get to that. And then I never went back to it to actually well, request one from him or to order one. But yeah, now it sounds like a good time. This is a good time. Right. And good, good. Um, well, it, as if you can get them, it might be a good time in the States. Yeah, like I don't think that's, yeah, actually, speaking of, you know, shipping times, I just, um, I ordered some books that came from a publisher in Canada several months ago, and they just showed up yesterday. Oh, that's right. You were telling us about that. <laughs> and uh, that's yeah. Canada. Yeah, yeah. I think mm -hmm. we were talking about that on that same uh, feedback. So huh. they just well, arrived. at least they arrived, right? I'll have to go well, back and look at the actual post date. They got here it, before like Christmas. They actually sent it out. But, but you're complaining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, they're they are all intended as gifts for. Other well, people, speaking so. of Pasadena Brian and the uh, TAB Fabric Company and the masks, we have this little commercial for you. Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. This is Pasadena Brian, and I have a mask update for everyone. First of all, I want to thank you so much for mentioning my site, tabfabric.com, and the special discount code LoveAPG. The good news is I've raised $239 for the Pasadena Women's Shelter. The bad news is I ran out of aviation masks the first few days of launching the promotion. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who were disappointed they couldn't get their airplane masks. It's been so incredibly difficult getting aviation-themed fabric. But, finally, I've received a new shipment. Therefore, if anyone wants to get an individually handmade aviation-themed mask, they're now available at tabfabric.com. After you make your selection and check out, be sure to enter the discount code LOVEAPG and you'll receive a nice discount. On top of that, all proceeds from my mask-making project will go to the Pasadena Women's Shelter. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Fly safely. Pasadena Brian. Very good. So there's your update on uh, Tab Fabrics um, Mask Company, <laughs> tabfabric.com. Don't forget to use the code, the discount code, LOVEAPG. Yeah, and great yep. cause he's raising money for, too. too. 
Support the cause. Absolutely. And we all love APG. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Come on. Yeah. All right, Brian. Hopefully uh, you'll get a bunch of orders from people. Um, Continuing. We're actually doing pretty well here. Um, Got more than a half an hour remaining in the show. And just two pieces of feedback left. So we might be able to get away with a shorter shorter show this week. <laughs> I know. So sad He's very, very <laughs> sad. Sorry. Uh, this was sent in from somebody uh, who uh, wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, Hi, APG crew. I recently saw a Studio C airplane episode. I laughed so hard during the entire thing. The story follows a journey through an airport and on a very eventful flight. I hope you guys really enjoy it. And they sent a link to the uh, a YouTube link to the video. He said, I also have one more question for you that recently occurred to me. That would, um, what would you guys think if you saw someone on the flight deck during a cruising phase of flight playing a flight simulator game on their phone, ignoring rules about phone use on the flight deck? Would you remind them, um, you're currently sitting in a very large and real flight deck or something like that? Food for thought. Thank you for your great podcast. I really enjoy it. So... I hope that that anonymous person, uh, or I thank the the anonymous person for sending this in. Um, I don't know. Yeah, probably say something smart, Alec. Like, yeah, uh, what are you doing with a... Well, first of all, you're not supposed to be using that on the flight deck to begin with. (laughs) But, you know, why are you doing that? Secondly, why? exactly. I don't know. Well, I'd I'd say, like, we got eight hours to cross the uh, Atlantic. Yeah, Yeah. have fun. Just don't start making. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, we're using electronic flight bags, which are oh, actually iPads. And uh, on my company, it was uh, you were allowed to personalize your iPad, put your own apps on it. Uh, so it's quite likely that guys would um, yeah, put non-flying related stuff on their iPads. Uh, guys would work on their laptops and things at times. So, you know, um, they would enter the details of the flight of their into their logbook on their phone. So people do use the equipment that they have, the electronic equipment, and so long as it's set to flight safe mode, that uh, I didn't actually see any problem with that. And so long as anything that they did didn't distract them too much from uh, the regular duties that we performed on board, I never found a problem. Because the big difference between short haul and long haul is that in short haul, you're generally yeah, you busy all the time. Uh, long haul, you've yeah. got long periods to kill where you're really just monitoring the equipment. So uh, as long as you don't allow yourself to become too distracted. Well, this right here is my soundboard that you hear me selecting um, a, a bunch of different things like. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. If I could, I'd fly for free. That's that's my (laughs) official Acme Airlines uh, electronic flight bag. So, yeah, I have all kinds of stuff on this thing. In addition to the stuff I have to have on it. Like, you know, the stuff that they want, they issue it with. But, yeah, they don't have a prohibition against us putting personal items on, on it either. They just have a prohibition against us actually using any of those personal items during the flight. So that's a difference between the companies. But yes, and yeah. now that I've mentioned that, um, I probably will be flying for free. Um, <laughs> <all right. laughs> 
<laughs> at least you don't have to pay for it yet. This, this is a good question, though. Very appropriate to your mm-hmm. particular setup. How long until the uh, FOs get annoyed with all the sound effects? I don't bring those up. I mean, <laughs> I have actually the same program on my on my phone that I could easily just pull up and do the same uh-huh. thing. Sure you don't. Uh, I, I try not. Actually, I just got, they made a uh, an Apple Watch um, program. <laughs> I just saw on one of the uh, one of the shows talking about iOS uh, and technology related things regarding it, and uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, if you're watching on the uh, on the video version of the show, okay, where are you? I know you're here somewhere. I'm trying to remember what the logo looks like. Here we go. Okay, see that? Am I? Oh, hey, what happened? Why did it do nope, that? It went away. Oh, because I, I don't have it on my wrist. Technology gremlins. Ugh. Yeah, you got to put it. Apple. I mean, that's I how know. it's supposed to be used. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's actually a design feature. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> don't you worry about that, Jeff. <laughs> okay. I mean, you do what you want, but rec- recommended uses. See this. See how much my crew loves wrist. me. All right. So, <laughs> so how, do, how do I do this? Oh, you take your arm uh, off. Man. I'm trying to get it in the camera. Uh, I can shit. see it. Okay, so it's no, got some so icons. There you go, right there. And, uh, so yeah, that's fine. Got a rim shot. Can you hear that? Yeah, yep. I can hear it. Okay. Oh, yeah, and here's one for uh, Rick. <laughs> oh, it's very loud, I see. Yeah, that's brilliant. I have a soundboard in my watch. I love it. How useful. Yeah. You're just the sort yes. of bloke, though, that would be halfway across the Atlantic. We're all having a snooze, and you start playing that over the radio. One, <laughs> two, three, four, five. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah. And you know how I feel about electronic devices. I'm, I mean, the whole motto of our show is electronic devices powered on. And if you... Are, uh, have been listening to the show for any period of time. You know how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. Um, but I follow the rules of my airline, though, because I find that having the income for flying airplanes for the for my company is uh, is a good thing. Yeah, I don't have to. I don't have an airline anymore. I know. You can do what you want. Yes, I That's can. That's right. <laughs> and do. Um, indubitably. All right. Uh, last item in the feedback segment Yay. is from Yukonner Morgan. Uh, in the news piece about the incident with Alcan, I couldn't help but laugh a little from the pronunciation. I know what did I say, Alcan? I don't know. Um, he didn't give us a pronunciation, thought, so no, Morgan, I know. what you have to do? Thanks, Morgan. For for things that we need to hear, you have to send in audio feedback. Yeah, he just set you up, Jeff. He was just being mean. I know. I thought so. Okay, let me continue what he's what he's saying here. Being from the Yukon, I didn't think that A L K A N, and again, I'm going to say Alcon, isn't a common word. It comes from the old Alaska Highway name, being the Alaska Canada Highway, Alcan Highway. I thought that's the way we were pronouncing. You've pronounced it, it two different ways now. You've said Alcon and Alcan or Alcan. Yes, okay. that's right. You've got to make so, up your mind which one you're going to go with. 
Uh, I would well, you say know what, Alcan, Morgan? but that's just because that's how I pronounce Alcan? all A's. Okay, Alcan, but that makes sense. Alaska. Canada. So I tell you what, though, before we um, give him the, the bell, you know, this one here, uh, we're going to have to ask him to record his pronunciation of it. Yes. Okay? That's your hom- homework, Morgan. <laughs> yes. You, Connor. And also other um, frequently used uh, strange words from your region of the like world. A? Hoser, or some other <laughs> that ones. That might us. I did have a good um, listen, or uh, this goes back to PTUK earlier, and um, uh, Armando gave Carlos a uh, article that had a whole bunch of town names from Wisconsin to read, mm-hmm. or ah, Michigan. That would be fun. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was pretty funny. A lot of them were, you know, like Native American <laughs> names that are not. Oh yeah, those are not always the easiest ones. <laughs> That's funny. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I think Sheboygan was in there. That was that one threw him for a little bit of a Sheboygan. Yeah, no, that's an easy one. Well, but if you've never, um, I don't know. You know what? Now, see, when I first looked at Yukon or Morgan, I'm thinking like Yukon, like the Yukon Territory. But I'm thinking now maybe he's a he's a con artist, like a a, a conner. You Connor Morgan. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Maybe not. Mm. No. It, well, it could oh. be, but you might have just gone below 50% there. Oh, I know. Yeah. I hate to end the show like that, but I guess we're going to have to. It's a bummer. So, below 50%? Yeah. We'll, do our, yeah. Yeah, we'll do our best next next week to try to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and bring us above the 50% level. Um, and thanks to all of you for participating in our show by sending, sending us feedback. And we love answering your questions. And some of the times we actually get them right. And you can uh, send your feedback to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And you can also visit our wonderful website where uh, you can learn about the crew and the community and merchandise and the plane tales and the library and so much more. And that's airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also, of course, on the social media the social meads. Yeah, you can head over to twitter.com. We are at APG Crew. Uh, we are also at APG Crew on Instagram. And you can head over to Facebook, Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, so facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Join all of us there. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Other folks in the community would like to hear from you. And it's a good place to go if you want to know when we're going to record the show live. And if you'd like to join us or find out about last minute changes to those schedules. Very good. We're also on that quasi mm, social I'm such media a slacker app with Slack thing. Slacker, yeah. Um, it's called Slack. Let's see if uh, Hillel is available to uh, tell us about that. Hillel, Hillel, Jeff, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poo for once? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, I guess he's not available he, right now. <laughs> well, give him a moment. I th- oh, wait, hang on. He's, okay. he's pushing me out of the okay. way. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S L A C K. 
Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. We always appreciate uh, information about... He managed to wipe his bottom very quickly. Yes, I mean, he did. Well, I wouldn't think not too much about sure. that, to yeah. be honest. Maybe he didn't. Your timing is great, Jeff. <laughs> I didn't know he was passive-aggressive, <laughs> too. Every, everybody here, Steph, is passive-aggressive. Come on. <laughs> That's our happy passive-aggressive place. That's right, that's right. Show title. No, actually, there's a good... I've got that. Um, I think it was suggested by... Oh, did Lane put it in there way long ago? I don't know. Anyway. All right. Yeah. So let's wrap this thing up. Uh, again, thanks for uh, downloading the show from uh, or listening, streaming it. Uh, uh, let me go to our website so I can I can talk about all the different places that you can find our show. Basically, anywhere where fine aviation podcasts are are served. And uh, let's see. Uh, I guess I have to hit one of the latest episodes to see Spotify. We're up, well, Apple Podcasts. That's the number one. Uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and many, many more. So thanks for listening to the show. And if you want to send us uh, or do a nice review and give us a five-star rating or whatever, uh, we always appreciate that. Six stars would be better. Six stars, if you can squeeze another one in there, would be awesome. And it would help bring up some of those one-star reviews that we get. just kidding i don't think we've ever gotten one but don't hey don't i don't want you to be the first don't get any ideas and also a big round of applause to liz who is back with us again this week she's talking into my ear and it's so nice to have her while we're doing this show and a lot of work that she does behind the scenes so thank you very much liz for that and until next time wishing you all clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline